Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Never let it be said, I didn't finish what I started. This is the last chapter, chapter 7, of the online book by James Montgomery entitled The United States Still, a British Colony. This chapter is called American Land Ownership, a True Oxymoron. It includes an introduction by the informer. What Mr. James Montgomery is trying to convey in this, his final writing on this subject, is that of laying the foundation for how this country operates today. Not that you can go into a court and present these arguments today. You can't. If you don't know the power structure's beginnings, then you are doomed forever to repeat the same mistakes as those that preceded you in their quest to seek justice. To truly win in the situation, there must be a concerted effort by at least 70% of the people to overturn the present state of affairs. That will not happen because of the ignorance of the masses that are so easily led by those in power. The people have truly forsaken the true sovereign, namely the Lord Almighty. Without going into the so-called religion aspect, let me just pose some questions. Did the Lord Almighty create the land? Yes. Did the Pope create the land? Uh, no. Did the king create the land? No. Did any other man create the land? No. Did any group of men called state with a capital S create the land? No. Now that I have answered the questions for you, then here are some that you are to answer yourselves. Then, who is the real owner of the land? Did not the creator of the land bestow it upon all men and their heirs to be stewards of the land, granting to no one man or group of men absolute dominion over any land? When men die, who does the land escheat to? For those not familiar with that term escheat, it means who does the land go back to when all men die? Your answers can only show that no pope, king, man himself, or group of men called state with a capital S can ever claim they own the land and charge another man a fee to live on that land. Mr. Montgomery is showing you the progression from a certain period of time that certain mere mortal men have decided 
that they were granted certain rights above all other men in claiming dominion over all land. The pecking order, starting from the top in controlling land, are 1. The Pope 2. The King of all lands, but we are talking specifically the King of England here, or Queen 3. Knights 4. Lord Proprietors of the King or Queen in America 5. Royal Governors of the King or Queen in America 6. Administrative Officers of the Corporate Colonies of America 7. Freeholders slash freemen of granted property in America 8. The officers of the newly constituted States of America gave way to the nine officers of the United States, which now reverses eight and nine due to the States joining Union. Ten, the county officers, which are the corporate instrumentalities of the State. And last, eleven, Simple man, meaning you, reading this. You, number 11, are so far removed from the land that the Lord Almighty gave to all simple men that essentially you have no claim but as a squatter on someone else's land and have no control whatsoever in saying you have the right to not pay taxes for the use of the Pope's land. But the Pope is the figurehead of a corporation called the Vatican, consisting of men forming a quote-unquote religion, which the Lord Almighty never created a quote-unquote religion, claiming complete dominion over all land in the world. When the Pope dies, another of these men is chosen as the new Pope. There is one little quirk that needs to be mentioned. That is, a group of men exist that have control of even the Vatican. Therefore, every chain holder on down to number 11 on the list is controlled. That group of men are called bankers. The Pope and the King in 1213, on to a period just past 1218, lost a lot of money fighting each other and drew on a group of men, one in particular, that loaned to each side money. When neither could pay the loans back and defaulted, the money lender foreclosed. He foreclosed in agreement by not taking all the property except for England, as is done today on foreclosures. But an arrangement was made that satisfied the so-called Holy Trinity that is espoused by Mr. Montgomery below. That quote-unquote Holy Trinity is mentioned in the Treaty of 1783. Of whom do you think the Holy Trinity consists? So, that list above, from 1 to 11, actually needs another entity. I did not put him in, 
so I could make it clear who it is in order of claim to the land you live on as a tenant. Now, number one has been replaced by the banker, and everyone has shifted down a notch. Hello, number 12, you the listener. How do you like your position on the list? Well, if you people reject allegiance to the true Lord and cling to another and pledge allegiance to another, then you deserve to pay those that allow you, through privilege, to live on their land. You gave up that right to live on land of the true landowner without even a fee, except to abide by his laws, and not that of mere mortal man such as yourself. Until you understand this, and what Mr. Montgomery has tried telling you in his previous articles, and I have in my books and articles on the net, you will continue to be nothing but a slave to the system that perpetuated a fraud upon you and your family tree for centuries. No, you cannot attack unless the numbers are sufficient. Yes, the below is true, despite what anyone says to degrade Mr. Montgomery's research of many years. These people that degrade have either an ignorance level so high that no amount of education will correct it, or they are in league with a higher number on the pecking order that wants to keep the status quo. These men are the only ones that the Lord Almighty wished woe upon in the Bible for hiding the key of knowledge. See Luke and Matthew. You can look at it this way as relates to present day. The banker remains in complete control. I don't mean your local banker, but those that control all banks in America and the world. They operate with straw men, many deep, so as to keep the people ignorant as to what is going on. Look at the list above to see how many straw men exist. Mr. Montgomery mentions the Pope once below. He is trying to keep it a little simpler because the straw man of the Vatican slash Pope, the crown, is easier to understand for most people. This is the same operation that many people get into by creating so many corporations that you never know just who is the controlling man. You may see this on government stories where the detective says he traced back through a tree of corporations and got lost in the many branches and could not find who really owns the contraband. I will vouch that Mr. Montgomery is a very thorough researcher and has nothing to gain from the dissemination of the information below, with the exception to get people to wake up to the truth instead of constantly, for decades, 
chasing the elusive Wizard of Oz with all his smoke and mirrors. I have read Mr. Montgomery's article below, and it confirms what I have also found. As I said, the power brokers control every lawyer and judge, who are also lawyers, in this, if not all other judges in the world, because without them, the fraud could not be carried out. Have you ever heard of an honest trial where justice is dispensed to the American man or woman who runs afoul of the system, even when he is innocent? Where do you think all the money the private IRS collects goes to? Maybe to the credit of the straw man number nine above? Credit to whom? Just follow the ladder back up to the top, and remember, the original numbers have all dropped one notch down to make room for whom? Signed, The Informer. A word from the author, James Montgomery. This book represents ten years of my life. Whether you agree with my findings or not, know that my purpose for doing this research and writing this book is out of love for my country and the desire to serve my Lord Jesus Christ. With the hope of seeing the greatest nation on the face of the earth once again serve the God of Abraham. I've learned over the years that my Lord's grace is sufficient and his love passes any comprehension or understanding I thought I had. We are not forsaken. So those of you that may become discouraged, don't. Read the last chapter of our Lord's letter. We win. In the days ahead, there will be no doubt temptation to yield to discouragement and despair. He's talking to me there. Just keep your purpose true and your eyes on Jesus. As with Peter, reach out, take our Lord's hand, walk above the storm around you. My thanks to the informer and his years of dedication and historical research, helping Americans see through the fog of deception, and his unmatched technical work and research in the field of law and taxes, and for making his books available to the public. The books we have published on this subject are in no way the totality of the historical and legal documents concerning the reality of our freedom, or rather the lack thereof. I challenge anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear, with a desire to know the truth, continue the search with us. It's your freedom with knowledge as its key. Never allow yourself to become complacent with the status quo. Always try to increase your knowledge, because knowledge is freedom. Signed, James Franklin Montgomery. So this now, the last chapter of The United States is Still a British Colony. This chapter is entitled, American Land Ownership a true oxymoron. Many of you are aware that the laws of this nation and its states were made in compliance and submission to the laws of England 
only modified by state and federal law. You will see in this last chapter state statutes from just a few of the original colonies that this is the case. Are these what are called ancient statutes? Yes. However, since the king's corporation is alive and well, as are his heirs, so is his trust and the law used to create and govern it. The law that governs his trust can only be amended. No law could be enacted contrary to the king's will and sets to a K trust the main corporate soul where office is always found the crown. The king's practice of granting lands in this country to those whose loyalty to him continues, along with their land grants being protected by state ancient statutes which are still on the books. We are governed by the king's nobles just as in times of old England. Uh, yeah, that was why the original 13th Amendment had to be memory hold in the War of 1812, because we are governed by the king's nobles, and today we know them as esquires, or which is a title of nobility. Another title for them are lawyers. And how many are in Congress that are lawyers? Are there any in Congress that aren't lawyers? You get the picture. Self-proclaimed nobles and corporate trusts. Uh, if you missed uh, the, the couple of shows ago, the original 13th Amendment, it's got nothing to do with today's 13th Amendment. Back uh, in 1810, 1811, a congressman put it through, or a senator, put, it, put through a, a bill that passed, was ratified, and everything. It became the original 13th Amendment, and it put teeth in the actual part of the Constitution that said you can't have a title of nobility and work for the government. That would have done away with all lawyers in government, they would have lost their rights uh, as citizens, everything. They would have been out the door. And hence we had, that's why we had the War of 1812. The British come in, burn the White House, burn all records of the original 13th Amendment, and then go home. Hmm. And they let us celebrate this one uh, battle we had won in, in uh, New Orleans with Andy Jackson, and that was subsequent to the, even the signing of the peace treaty, as most of us know, after uh, the War of 1812 concluded. But why did the British just totally capture our capital, burn it down, and then go home? You would think they would have kept that advantage, don't you think? <laughs> it wasn't about winning any war. It was about erasing any knowledge of the 13th Amendment, the original one. Welcome to the Twilight Zone, folks. All this real history that you're not taught and you're not supposed to know. Back to the book. The huge corporations have been granted power and liberty not known by the common man. The nobles, real and the created, occupy their possessions as fiduciaries and trustees of the king's grants, only if they remain loyal to the system, their privilege and lifestyle are their reward. You will see that the Church of England was granted lands in this country, and their lands are protected by corporate privilege through trusts and fee-simple title. As I have stated before, the king receives the gain for his business venture here in the United States, 
as he does with all of his corporations. A portion of the fines and taxes we pay today go right back to the sovereign, the king or queen of England, and his or her heirs and or successors. As I pointed out in previous chapters of The United States is Still a British Colony. After reading the facts contained in this chapter, you will find my conclusion, which is based on my ten years of researching this subject through acquiring and culmination of historical facts which I have shared with you in this book. The Nexus. The following is from the Carolina Charter, 1663. Quote, All that territory or tract of ground situate lying and being within our dominions in America, listed known boundaries, and moreover all veins, mines, and quarries, as well discovered as not discovered, of gold, silver, gems, and precious stones, and all other whatsoever be it of stones, metals, or any other thing whatsoever found or to be found within the country, isles, limits aforesaid, unquote. The following is also from the Carolina Charter, 1663, quote, Saving always the faith, allegiance, and sovereign dominion due to us, our heirs and successors for the same, and saving also the right title and interest of all and every of our subjects of the English nation which are now planted within the limits bounds aforesaid, if any be. Unquote. The following is from the Carolina Charter, 1663. Quote, Yielding and paying yearly to us our heirs and successors for the same, the yearly rent of twenty marks of lawful money of England at the Feast of All Saints, yearly, forever. The first payment thereof to begin and be made on the Feast of All Saints, which shall be in the year of our Lord 1665, and also the fourth part of all gold and silver ore, which, with the limits aforesaid, shall from time to time happen to be found. Unquote. The below statute contains a wealth of information. It is just another example of who owns the land in this country. The first thing I want you to see is corporation is, a upper, is an uppercase C. Proper noun, referring to the main corporation, i.e. the United States Corporation, also made clear by the end of the first sentence. Notice also that even the corporation, capital C, the United States government, even that does not claim a lodial title, because that office found is with the king. The government has only been vested with fee simple title through the corporate charters of the crown, as amended by the 1783 Treaty of Peace, and resulting 1787 Constitution. The king can only pass a lodial title 
to his heirs and no one else. This is why the highest title the government can pass is fee simple. Uh, did you ever have any questions as to whether the United States was a, just a company, a corporation? Uh, this, ought to be, th this should answer any of those questions you may have the following uh, few paragraphs. Also, notice that the corporation, capital C, can divest any and all occupiers of the land of any title or deed they may hold, transfer the land to the corporation in which it holds the land in fee simple title and the title previously held by individuals or states capital s has its title quieted or divested and office found then reversion back to the corporation now if you will recall the information I found concerning an act George Washington enacted, here's a, George Washington was a bastard, L listen to this, contained in emails attached as the addendum to the third chapter to this book, wherein, here we go, Washington extended the jurisdiction and control of the District of Columbia. He created district states that overlaid the states. This is, uh, by this, this is why, by the way, Washington could right away, right off the bat, call out the federal troops on, uh, on the Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, all that. This is why he, um, he actually made it legal, because he superseded the geographic states right away in 1791. He, he made the District of Columbia, and he spread it out. Uh, that it overspread it throughout the rest of the colonies, the rest of the states, and uh, all of the state governments were uh, were subordinate to the District of Columbia. Washington did, did that right off the bat, 1791. Back to the book. Since it is such a relevant subject and part of this book, I include it after the below statute so you can better understand the statute below. 16 U.S.C. Section 831X, Title 16, Chapter 12A, Section 831X, Condemnation Proceedings, Institution by Corporation, Capital C, Venue, Statute, Quote, The Corporation, Capital C, may cause proceedings to be instituted for the acquisition by condemnation of any lands easements or rights of way which in the opinion of the corporation are necessary to carry out the provisions of this chapter the proceedings shall be instituted in the United States District Court for the district in which the land easement right of way or other interest or any part thereof is located and such court shall have full jurisdiction to divest the complete title to the property sought to be acquired out of all persons or claimants, and vest the same in the United States in fee simple, and to enter a decree quieting the title thereto in the United States of America, capital U, capital S, capital A, unquote. Also see below, 48-2, Section 3, Eminent Domain, North Carolina Statute.
Before we move on to the action taken by George Washington, you need to understand that the legal term fee simple is now a metaphor, just as the legal term United States. It is given lip service today in relation to the common man and has another meaning when used in relation to the crown or the main sub-corporation, the United States, with its seats being the District of Columbia. When dealing with land ownership, you have to use the definition at law that governs the crown not the metaphors created later by his barristers to con the common man into believing that he or she has a lodial or fee-simple title to the land. All that is necessary to know the condition on which you own your land, or supposedly own your land, I guess. If you think you have a lodial, fee-simple title, or fee-tail title, Ask yourself one question. Is there a tax imposed on the land that you claim to own? If a tax is or can be levied, you do not own the land. Because if you fail to pay the tax, the land is reclaimed by the corporation, by alienation and reversion. Also, under the institutional law of the crown, that came with the conquest of Britain by William the Conqueror, you could not be charged a tax on the land if you had fee simple title. It could not be diminished in any way. The fee was payment by the king for the sworn loyalty of the lords and knights to fight for the king in his wars of conquest. Later changed to a monetary fee, to pay soldiers to fight in the wars. King Edward I began the redefining of the legal term fee simple. The following is from The History of the Common Law of England by Matthew Hale, 1713. Quote, Tenthly, he made that great alteration in estates from what they were formerly by statute Westminster Two, capital one, whereby estates of fee simple, conditional at common law, were turned into estates tail, not removable from the issue by the ordinary methods of alienation. And upon this statute, and for the qualifications hereof, are the superstructures built of 4H7, capital 32, 32H8, and 33H8, unquote. Those living on your land under fee tail, or a lesser title, via deed to the land, would pay the king's tax. As a metaphor, as applied today, you can be charged a tax when you are told you have fee simple title if you are a common man. The corporation's holdings are not taxed depending on the corporate charter granted by the government or if you have a trust that contains fee-simple title with tax protection, you could be protected legally, but you still don't own the land. When the life of the trust expires or is mishandled by the trustees, 
It reverts back to the corporation's soul through alienation and office found, or by confiscation due to delinquent tax obligations. So any fee-simple title you may have comes by legal right, not sovereign grant. This is the difference between the tenants on the land and the corporation. Again, if you are talking about the corporation or any of its holdings, its fee simple title is not taxed and is by sovereign grant from the king, enhanced by conquest as his successor and trustee over his holdings. George Washington's thought on independence from the king was echoed by many of our forefathers. Oh, this is a very telling quote here. In May 1775, George Washington said, quote, If you ever hear of me joining in any such measure, such as separation from Great Britain, you have my leave to set me down for everything wicked, unquote. He also said, quote, It is not the wish or interest of the government of Massachusetts or of any other upon this continent separately or collectively, to set up for independence, unquote. Wow. That's from Ingersoll, North American Review, August 1892. Now, to the Act of Washington, and for those of you who have not seen this, the act that made the reclaiming and managing of the King's Corporation possible and made possible the end run around the 1787 Constitution. State versus district. Did the 1787 Constitution survive? Fall 1997. Quote, how is this accomplished in reading the messages and papers of the President's Volume 1, 1789 to 1897, I discover the following. Gentlemen of the Senate, pursuant to the powers vested in me by the act entitled An Act Repealing After the Last Day of June, next, the duties heretofore laid upon distilled spirits imported from abroad and laying others in their stead, and also upon spirits distilled within the United States and for appropriating the same. I have thought fit to divide the United States into the following districts, namely, the District of New Hampshire to consist of the State of New Hampshire, the District of Massachusetts to consist of the State of Massachusetts. This is George Washington selling out the young country, right away in 1791. The District of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations to consist of the State of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. The District of Connecticut to consist of the State of Connecticut. You see what he's doing. He's superseding the state governments with the federal government. Right away, folks. Right away he did this. The District of Connecticut to consist of the state of Connecticut. The District of Vermont to consist of the state of Vermont. 
the District of New York to consist of the state of New York, the District of New Jersey to consist of the state of New Jersey, the District of Pennsylvania to consist of the state of Pennsylvania, the District of Delaware to consist of the state of Delaware, the District of Maryland to consist of the state of Maryland, the District of Virginia to consist of the state of Virginia, the District of North Carolina to consist of the state of North Carolina, the District of South Carolina, and the District of Georgia to consist of the state of Georgia, I guess South Carolina. I think he skipped a few words there. Back to, okay, then that was from March 4th, 1791. George Washington sticking a stake into the heart of this, of the young country. Back to Montgomery's words. In George Washington's proclamation of March 30th, 1791, he declares the District of Columbia to be created and its borders established. He says further, quote, and Congress by an amendatory act passed on the third day of the present month of March has given further authority to the President of the United States, unquote. You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, Washington is, is uh, lauded in, in mainstream history as having rejected the kingship. They wanted to make him king, uh, and, 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 and we're told that Napoleon was just in awe of, of Washington's humility. Because obviously Napoleon didn't have any humility. Uh, but folks, there was no difference, or very little difference. Washington, in effect, made himself king. He made whoever's president king. Uh, for practical purposes. In 1791. Uh, this, 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 these are again the words of Washington, quote, first of all, the judicial districts were created by the Judiciary Acts of 1789. No, this is somebody else writing. Who is this? I don't know. Uh, anyway, two years before Washington said Congress gave him additional powers, thereby Washington created the district states Okay, this is Montgomery writing. Mon uh, Washington created the district states so the federal government could use the militias to crush the tax protesters in Pennsylvania by Washington's order. Since the judicial districts already existed, why did they recreate them? If the district states were already created, would it not be redundant to create them again? Washington said he was dividing the United States into district states. He said, dividing the states, folks. Listen, dividing the states. Not creating districts in the states. Dividing the states into districts. Changing them. Or would you not divide them, because the states were already divided. How can you divide, separate the states, made by the state and federal charters or constitutions? Why do this when Congress already had the power to put down rebellion in Article 1, Section 8, U.S. Constitution? This 
was an excuse by Washington to divide the states into districts, extending the jurisdiction of the District of Columbia, or Congress, and delegating to the president authority given to Congress to suppress insurrection under Article 1, Section 8. And that last part kind of lost me. Second, the use of any military power before Congress declares war by direction of the president is done by him as commander-in-chief. Until Congress declares war, they cannot stop the president unless they impeach him or when they declare worthy can stop the president. Needs an editor. Or when they declare war, they can stop the president with their power of the purse. Unless the president were to then declare a national emergency as commander-in-chief, overriding Congress, in effect declaring himself king, or, in our case, holding anyone, anyone holding that office, which we now have. I disagree with the unconstitutional emergency powers claimed by the president, but unless the judiciary declares the president out of line, neither you nor I can change this unless you or I were to be elected president and declared this power unconstitutional. But Congress would then impeach you or me to protect public policy Around and around it goes. Again, this power comes from their operating under executive jurisdiction, insular capacity, which was allowed by the judiciary, beginning with what Washington did in 1791. Because it was up to the judiciary to declare what Congress and Washington were doing as unconstitutional, and up to Washington to not take power delegated to Congress. This power was affirmed by the Congressional Act of 1845 and in the 1850s by the Insular Cases. This set the stage for Lincoln to legislate by executive orders, and here we are. Third, the districts Washington created answered directly to the commander-in-chief, not Congress. In order for these districts to be created by the president, Congress had to give the president power outside of the Constitution as declared by Washington himself. Martial law can be used as soon as the military is called upon to put down insurrection or fight a war. Washington created district states, not state districts, and the military occupied the Pennsylvania district until the insurgents went home. Washington said these districts were created for putting down the rebellion. However, they were never disbanded when the rebellion ended. The following quote is from the Harvard Law Review. Our New Possessions, page 481, quote, These courts, then, are not constitutional courts in which the judicial power conferred by the Constitution on the general government can be deposited. They are incapable of receiving it. 
They are legislative courts, created in virtue of the general right of sovereignty which exists in the government, or in virtue of that clause which enables Congress to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory belonging to the United States. Lowercase u. The jurisdiction with which they are invested is not a part of that judicial power which is conferred in the third article of the Constitution, but is conferred by Congress in the execution of those general powers which that body possesses over the territories of the United States, capital U. Unquote. See also Propeller Genesee Chief versus Fitzhugh, Jackson versus Magnolia, Downs versus Bidwell, Allison and Company versus Evett. Below you will see how Lincoln codified the war powers. The nexus was the district states Washington had created. I won't go into the subject of the conquest after the Civil War, since it is far easier to understand. I invite you to read and study the documents in Part 3 to learn about this subject. However, I offer below the codification of military occupation, conquest, and international codification of martial law. You can download the whole General Order 100. Uh, let's see. The martial law, military jurisdiction, military necessity, retaliation. Quote, Article 1. The place, district, or country occupied by an enemy stands in consequence of the occupation under the martial law of the invading or occupying army, whether any proclamation declaring martial law or any public warning to the inhabitants has been issued or not. Martial law is the immediate and direct effect and consequence of occupation or conquest. Folks, this is why all the, the, the so-called patriots out there who are decrying or warning about martial law is going to be declared, it's pointless. It's already declared. We're already in it. The only thing we don't have are the troops on the streets. But uh, legally, it's already here, folks. You need to know that. Uh, it, and it goes back to 1791. And it was, uh, the, the wrenches were tightened. The screws were tightened extremely, though, during the Reconstruction Act after the, the so-called Civil War. The presence of a hostile army proclaims it martial law. Article 2. Martial law does not cease during the hostile occupation except by special proclamation ordered by the commander-in-chief or by special mention in the treaty of peace concluding the war when the occupation of a place or territory continues beyond the conclusion of peace as one of the conditions of the same. Act 3. Martial law in a hostile country consists in the suspension by the occupying military authority of the criminal and civil law and of the domestic administration and government in the occupied place or territory and in the substitution of military rule and force for the same, as well as in the dictation of general laws 
as far as military necessity requires this suspension, substitution, or dictation. The commander of the forces may proclaim that the administration of all civil and penal law shall continue, either wholly or in part, as in times of peace, unless otherwise ordered by the military authority. Unquote. Uh, those were instructions for the government of armies of the United States in the field, issued as General Orders Number 100, Adjutant General's Office. Okay. Okay, I'll tell you what, this last part here, American Land Ownership, a True Oxymoron by James Montgomery. Uh, this is a long chapter. It's going to take two parts, and this, this will be the first part. I'll split it up, and uh, that'll do it for now. Uh, this has been part seven, the last chapter of the United States is still a British colony. This was entitled, this chapter was entitled American Land Ownership, a True Oxymoron by James Montgomery. I'm Gordon Comstock. This has been the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. Time to close out the online book by James Montgomery entitled The United States is Still a British Colony. This is the last chapter, chapter 7. It's part 2 of the last chapter. Uh, this chapter entitled American Land Ownership, a True Oxymoron. Plan of a New Government. Our forefathers were first and foremost administrators for the king and his holdings, so as to keep their personal grants and fee-simple titles to their own land holdings in America and Britain. Prior to the Revolutionary War, the 1783 Peace Treaty, and the 1787 Constitution, there was a plan to organize a central government still subject to the king, still collecting taxes for the king. The only difference between the government we have and the government you read about below is your perception with word and technical changes. The 1787 Constitution was a well-thought-out document, but the document below was its predecessor, and the similarities are obvious. What you will read below, along with the other documents provided in this book, describe exactly what we have today. Notice the two paragraphs provided below. In the first, a central government is to be set up with each colony to retain its own constitution. In the second paragraph, you see that a president general is to be elected to run the central government for the king. What do we have now? President Commander-in-Chief. Also, he is appointed and supported by the crown. How does any president get elected? The system is set up so that only someone supported by the large corporations of this country can seriously run for president or be elected because of their financial support. Without this support, you cannot be president no matter what the public wants. So the public only has crown-approved men they can select from to vote for 
That way, no matter who wins, the Crown's interest is protected. The public is told what to think about the different men the corporations have chosen to represent them, so they think they are making informed choices. Nothing could be further from the truth. They are electing a man, no matter the party, that will protect the Crown's interest, not the public's. You may wish to continue to deny reality, but you can't separate the wet from the water, nor separate our government from Britain. The following is from the Constitution's predecessor, and here it's all laid bare. The 1754 Albany Plan of Union. Quote, It is proposed that humble application be made for an act of parliament of Great Britain by virtue of which one general government may be formed in America, including all the said colonies, within and under which government each colony may retain its present constitution, except in the particulars wherein a change may be directed by the said act as heretofore follows that the said general government be administered by a president general to be appointed and supported by the crown and a grand council to be chosen by the representatives of the people of the several colonies met in their respective assemblies, unquote. That was from the 1754 Albany Plan of Union. The king's corporations are alive and well. Lands they hold in fee simple can be parceled out to whom they will, with the lands returning to the king when the grant-slash-trust-slash-license expires. The king made grants to his colonies and lords. They became corporations under the United States Corporate Charter. The lords make grants to other select men via corporate charters or by grants of trusts or license to smaller corporations and individuals. In a time a corporation dies and no office is found, its lands revert back to the grantor of the corporation, and so on back up the line. This is the reason for the inheritance tax and why it will never be repealed. I refer you to an earlier chapter I wrote entitled, How Long Can a Corporation Live? Also check out a paper the informer and I jointly wrote on the subject of rent roll and reversion and corporation soul, entitled Friends, Enemies, and Die-Hard Doubters. And you would be well advised to read the informer's book, The New History of America, and his other publications. Before you read the ancient statutes, you must understand the legal term fee simple. Understanding Fee Simple. The following is from Blackstone's Commentaries. Quote 63. 1. Origin of Feuds. The Constitution of Feuds 
had its original from the military policy of the northern or Celtic nations, the Goths, the Huns, the Franks, the Vandals, and the Lombards, who, all migrating from the same Officina Gentium, the storehouse of nations, as Craig very justly entitles it, poured themselves in vast quantities into all the regions of Europe at the declension of the Roman Empire. It was brought by them from their own countries and continued in their respective colonies as the most likely means to secure their new acquisitions. And to that end, large districts or parcels of land were allotted by the conquering general to superior officers of the army, and by them dealt out again in smaller parcels or allotments to the inferior officers and most deserving soldiers. These allotments were called feoda, feuds, fiefs, or fees, which last appellation in the northern languages signifies a conditional stipend or reward. Rewards or stipends they evidently were. And the condition annexed to them was that the possessor should do service faithfully, both at home and in the wars, to him by whom they were given for which purpose he took the jurentum fidelitatis, or oath of fealty, and in case of the breach of this condition and oath, by not performing the stipulated service, or by deserting the Lord in battle, the lands were again to revert to him who granted them." Unquote. The following is from Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition, 1968. Quote, Feud, an inheritable right to the use and occupation of lands held on condition of rendering services to the lord or proprietor who himself retains the property in the lands. Unquote. The following is from the publication Feudalism by F. L. Ganshoff from 1964. Thus, the people had land they occupied, devised, inherited, alienated, or disposed of as they saw fit, so long as they remained in favor with the king." Unquote. The following is from Ballantyne's Law Dictionary, 3rd edition, 1969. Quote, the largest estate in the land known to the law and implying absolute dominion over the land, an estate of inheritance clear of any condition, limitation, or restriction to particular heirs. 28 American Jurisdiction to establish ten, an estate of lawful inheritance or pure inheritance, fee standing for inheritance, and fee simple for pure or lawful. A legal or equitable estate in land constituting the largest estate 
and implying absolute dominion, although possibly subject to executory limitations or conditions subsequent. Hayes Estate versus Commissioner. Ford versus Unity Church Society. Unquote. The following is from the website ohiobar.org. Are taxes to be paid by common man holding fee simple title? Yes, according to the way fee simple is defined today. Today, fee simple has been reduced in status to fee tail for common man. He is to pay all land taxes. Also, he must abide by all restrictions placed on the land by federal, state, and local governments, nor can he use the land in any activity contrary to the public policy. The difference is the U.S. corporation, just as the knight was granted land for fee, in service of the king by grant. Common man receives their fee from the corporation in tail, a lesser title. Today, fee simple and fee tail are synonymous depending on your status. I would have placed the quote here from the Ohio Bar Association on fee simple, but they restrict its use. However, below is their website so you can look for yourself. The following is from I.E. Washburn's Treatise on the American Law of Real Property. Melodial and Land Patents Titles. Quote, This holding of lands under another was called a tenure and was not limited to the relation of the first or paramount lord and vassal, but extended to those to whom such vassal, within the rules of feudal law, may have parted out his own feud to his own vassals, whereby he became the mesne lord between his vassals and his own or lord paramount. Those who held directly to the king were called his tenants-in-chief, unquote. Maybe with the below quote, you will also understand the meaning and significance behind the pyramid on our dollar with the all-seeing eye at the top of the pyramid. The following is from F. Goodwin, Treatise on Law and Real Property, Melodial and Land Patents Titles, quote, The fiefs were built in the same manner as the pyramid, with the king, the true owner of the land, being at the top. And from the bottom up, there existed a system of small to medium-sized to large to large-sized estates on which the persons directly beneath one estate owed homage to the lord of that estate as well as to the king. At the lowest level of this pyramid, through at least the 14th and 15th centuries, existed serfs or villains. There you go, Ev. 
the class of people that had no rights and were recognized as nothing more than real property, unquote. The following is from Gilsebert of Mons, Chronicle, Elodial and Land Patents Titles. Quote, Under this type of thief, a certain portion of the grain harvested each year would immediately be turned over to the Lord above that particular fief, even before the shares from the lower lords and then serfs of the fief would be distributed. A more interesting type of fief for purposes of this memorandum was the money fief. In most cases, the source of money was not specified and the payment was simply made from the fief holder's treasury. But the fief might also consist of a fixed revenue to be paid from a definite source in annual payments in order for the tenant owner of the fief to be able to remain on the property, unquote. The following is from Blackstone's Commentary, Book 2. Quote, 142. 1. Fee simple estates. Tenant in fee simple or, as he is frequently styled, tenant in fee, is he that hath lands, tenements, or hereditaments to hold to him and his heirs forever, generally, absolutely, and simply, without meaning what heirs, but referring that to his own pleasure or to the disposition of the law. The true meaning of the word fee or feodum is the same with that of feud or thief, and in its original sense, it is taken in contradistinction to allodium, which latter the writers on this subject define to be every man's own land, which he possesseth merely in his own right, without owing any rent or service to any superior." Unquote. The following is from Wendell versus Crandall, 1848. Quote, Thus, the term fee simple absolute in common law England denotes the most and best title a person could have as long as the king allowed him to retain possession of or own the land. It has been commented that the basis of English land law is the ownership of all reality by the sovereign. From the crown, all titles flow. The original and true meaning of the word fee, and therefore fee simple absolute, is the same as fief or feud, this being in contradiction to the term allodium, which means or is defined as a man's own land which he possesses merely in his own right, without owing any rent or service to any superior." Unquote. The following is from Friedman versus Steiner, 1883. Quote, Therefore, on common law England, practically everybody who was allowed to retain land had the type of fee simple absolute often used or defined by courts. A fee simple that grants or gives the occupier, 
as much of a title as the sovereign allows such occupier to have at that time. The term became a synonym with the supposed ownership of land under the feudal system of England at common law. Thus, even though the word absolute was attached to the fee simple, it merely denoted the entire estate that could be assigned or passed to heirs, and the fee being the operative word. Fee simple absolute dealt with the entire fief and its divisibility, alienability, and inheritability, unquote. The following is from Gilsebert of Mons. Elodial and land patents titles. Quote, if a fee simple absolute in common law England denoted or was synonymous with only as much title as the king allowed his barons to possess, then what did the king have by way of a title? The king of England held ownership of land under a different title and with far greater powers than any of his subjects. Though the people of England held fee simple titles to their land, the king actually owned all the land in England through his allodial title. And though all the land was in the feudal system, none of the fee simple titles were of equal weight and dignity with the king's title, the land always remaining allodial in favor of the king. Unquote. The following is from Stanton versus Sullivan, 1839. Quote, Thus, it is relatively easy to deduce that allodial lands and titles are the highest forms of lands and titles known to common law. An estate of inheritance without condition, belonging to the owner and alienable by him, transmissible to his heirs absolutely and simply, is an absolute estate in perpetuity and the largest possible estate a man can have, being in fact allodial in its nature." Unquote. The law of Mortmain, law of the sovereign, protecting his lands held by his lords and religious men in fee, prohibiting them from diluting his title. Declaring he could confiscate the land he or his lords were alienated from. Even the lords were subject to have their land reclaimed by the king if they violated the king's license requirements. You can find the law of Mortmain at the end of the chapter in the quotes section. I want to make this clear. If the king and his law, i.e. common law, are still alive, then so are his charters, corporations, and trusts. Without defeating the king through death or removal, his law still exists. If his law still exists, his corporation, the crown, is, as I have said, alive and well. What did we do at the end of the Revolutionary War and in framing the 1787 Constitution? 
claim the king's law, his common law, his feudal law for our own, and made it our law. So, if you are subject to any tax on the land you live on, you do not, I repeat, do not own your land. You do not have a lodial title to your land. It is not possible. Allodial and taxed property are an oxymoron. The two are as opposite as light and darkness. The two cannot exist together. Even worse than this, under common law, which we made our law of the land, you do not even have fee-simple possession of your land. Because early fee-simple possession is free from taxation. You hold the land in fee-simple at best if you have a tax shelter, a trust. Fee-tail and lesser ownerships are evidenced by a title, deed, or mortgage, which is how most land is held and is subject to taxation and or repossession if the taxes are not paid. I'm sorry, but this is a fact. I don't care what you've been told or led to believe concerning a lodial title. A huge number of patriots believe, because of the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War, that we are sovereigns here, possessing the land through a lodial title, as a matter of sovereignty, by having defeated the king. Wrong. It is impossible. The king has conned Americans. Or, I should say, allowed them to believe they are sovereigns, owning their land through a lodial title. This would be a good place for you to read some quotes by Sir Edmund Burke and by Adam Smith. Because of the importance taxation plays in proving land ownership in America, by a lodial title, is an oxymoron. I'm including more quotes at the end of this chapter by Adam Smith and other relevant information. Okay, we're going to skip a bit here. Uh, James Montgomery has a lot of quotes, disparate quotes from Adam Smith and from more court cases regarding a lodial title. I want to read this short one here. It is by... Sir Edmund Burke, in 1775, in Britain, said this before the House of Commons. Today we're told that Edmund Burke, during the Revolutionary War, he, he wanted Britain to let America go because he, they had British blood in them. Of course they're going to fight us. We need to be friends with them and just trade with them. Yeah, he said that, but it wasn't because of the story we're told, that he had feelings for the Americans. He was thinking only in terms of profit, folks, and in terms of enriching the crown, his lord. Uh, here's what he said, quote, But my idea of it is this, that an empire is the aggregate of many states under one common head, whether this head be a monarch or a presiding republic, unquote. And then James Montgomery writes, so, that explains Benjamin Franklin saying, we have given you a republic, if you can keep it. Actually, what Franklin said meant nothing. It was not a hindrance to the king and his barristers. The republic was not a hindrance to the king and his lawyers. 
Uh, boy, a lot of legal court sightings here. Skipping forward. Uh, this is back to the words of James Montgomery. Then, confirmed by the 1783 Peace Paris Treaty, or Peace Treaty, wherein the minerals did not change hands. They stayed with the king, his heirs and successors. In other words, the king, his heirs, and his successors forever were to continue to receive as a matter of trust the gain and profit from his corporate venture. To cement this, since his subjects had gone brain-dead and now believed themselves free from their obligations, believing when the states became states of, after the 1787 Constitution was ratified, they believed they became free and sovereign. In March 1791, thanks to good old George Washington, the states of became district states of the crown sidestepping even the 1787 Constitution and the state's short-lived independence that had been declared in 1776. In favor, now, of the king's public policy, his taxes and licenses to be administered by his United States Corporation and its elected fiduciaries and den of thieves, when governing for the king, the president and Congress were no longer bound by the 1787 Constitution. Not since 1791. The king would now receive, as declared in his early charters for himself, his heirs and successors, the 30% tax for his family business venture. Because now his bank could operate within these several district states incorporated in the District of Columbia. This was not possible until Washington made the district states in 1791 never to be repealed. Skipping forward, more and more citations. James Montgomery did uh, apparently did at least a decade's worth of, of work painstaking work in law libraries to uncover all of this. If you, if you want to read all of these quotes, go. I have the link up. Go read it. Okay, getting back now, uh, this looks like the words of James Montgomery again. Okay. His words are interspersed now in between just volum voluminous quotes. Uh, the main thing I want you to understand and I believe most do, as I said earlier, our laws were based on the common law of England. All states in union of the United States are, except one. That's right, one state out of the 50 is not under English common law. A lot of you may think this must be Texas, but it is not. The one state not subject to or formed under English common law is New York. New York City is responsible for not only our demise, but the entire world's. Well, if you ever had a doubt about New York representing some kind of Babylon, if not the Babylon of the book of Revelation, uh, listen up to this. Uh, New York City is the alter ego of London. 
and the other banking centers for the banksters of the world to operate. New York City is the home of the bankers, the World Trade Center, the stock market, the World Bank's control via the IMF and the United Nations, etc. The controlling center for all banking, communication, and supercomputers containing data on everyone and every transaction for the bankers to control the world's population and their leaders through their finances, with the UN as their police force and NATO as prosecutor of the law of the flag and conqueror of new empires. When you read the very revealing statements in the New York statutes below, you will see they declare themselves not to be under English common law. If you would like to understand how this fits into God's word, that is New York City, here we go, read James Montgomery's thinking like I'm thinking, read Revelation 17 and 18, Jeremiah 51, and Isaiah 13. I wrote on this subject years ago, and I won't go into it here other than to say, New York City is the biblical Babylon, as you can read for yourself, as God Almighty defines Babylon in Revelation 18. No other city in the world meets his definition. Okay, so just to prove if he was right, let's uh, read this quote here he has from New York State Consolidated Laws, General Construction, Article 3, Ancient Statutes and Resolutions, Sec quote, Section 70, Statutes of England and Great Britain, inoperative in this state. James Montgomery was not kidding. 71, Acts of the Legislature of the Colony of New York, inoperative. 72, Resolutions of the Congress of the Colony and the Convention of New York, inoperative. Section 70, Statutes of England and Great Britain, inoperative in this state. And it just goes on, just a few more. There it is. He was right. Boy, this guy excavated all of this stuff. Wow, it must really taken a lot of uh, lonely hours. Lonely, boring hours to find this stuff. Okay, skipping forward, more and more and more citations, and now we get back to the words of James Montgomery. I guess now is a good time to deal with the pipe dreams we have been taught and allowed to believe, reinforced by the government's school system, in the selective teaching of history and also parroted by the media. The pipe dream, as I said earlier, is our belief that we do or can possess land in this country under the present law in allodial title. Notice I said under the present law. This is the key to the king's power, retaining possession to his corporation, the crown. What did we do at the beginning of this nation? Declare our law to be English common law, confirming the king's corporation and the law that created it and protects it even today. And the following, there's a bunch of quotes about uh, law quotes from law dictionaries about 
definitions about a corporation, corporation soul, reversion, civil corporations, dissolution of corporations. We'll skip that and get back to James Montgomery again. Not to get ahead of myself, he writes. We first declared our independence. That sounded good. But why would you place your neck back under the yoke, the law that subjected you? Simple. As history proves, many of our forefathers, including Washington, did not want to be separated from the king. Some stood to lose lands and title. Others understood they were subjects of the king, and they liked it. History shows they were not at odds with being subjects of the king, just his policies regarding taxes and their government being so far removed. Commerce and legal convenience demanded representation here, but still controlled by the king. The king being so far removed from his possessions in America, misjudged his subjects' needs, and rebellion turned into war. But as always, the belligerents just wanted their redress heard, and our forefathers, knowing full well English history and how the game was played, knew the king would capitulate and make the concessions needed, never dreaming they would have what appeared to be a separate sovereign country at the end of the war. What about this war? Did we win? Well, let's look at history. I have covered this before, but it bears repeating. Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, but the document read, Capitulation at Yorktown. Did Cornwallis surrender, or did they just quit fighting because the king made the necessary capitulations to the colonists' demands? Well, did Cornwallis surrender his arms, in other words? Did he and his troops lay down their arms and leave unarmed? No. Did Cornwallis surrender his colors, the king's flag? No. Anyone that knows anything about war and conquest knows the flag of the surrendering enemy has to be surrendered. If not, you just fought a battle. You did not win the war. Was Cornwallis and his army allowed to return to England armed and with their colors? Yes. Were British subjects allowed to retain their lands and possessions in America? Yes. Was the king removed from his throne and his laws defeated by his removal? No. Tell me again, America. We won the Revolutionary War? I'm sorry the facts don't support what you want to believe is the case. Now to the so-called 1783 Peace Treaty, wherein the king's possessions were turned over to us without his losing the war. Benjamin Franklin spent almost the entire war traveling back and forth from France and England, working out the terms of the treaty, excuse me, the grant from the King of England. Let me see. We did not win the war. We did not dictate the terms of surrender. The king's barristers, along with the esquires chosen from America... Esquire being a title of nobility subject to the king, Franklin, Jay, and Adams wrote the document. A document wherein the king's law remained in force, and he granted lands 
to his new corporation, the United States. However, he did not grant to his corporation the rights to the minerals existing and all to be found in the future. As I have said before, he declared in his charters ownership to all minerals and that he was to receive a portion of the gain and profit in this country forever. Go back and read the quotes earlier in this paper. Also, how can the king do anything else but give fee simple title when his law provides for only him to have a lodial title? Did he change his law? No. Could he change the unrevocable trust his charters established for all his heirs and successors? No. No, and could not, without destroying his throne, his crown, his corporation, and his law, thereby conquesting himself. You see, that is the only way, under the king's law, to own land by a lodial title, via conquest, as the conqueror. This is why no country has defeated the king of England and his crown, because if his law exists, wherein the corporate charter was created, and the king and his heirs remain, the king's crown and charters remain in force. Here are some highlights from uh, some quotes here by, by Frederick Maitland, that, uh, whoever this guy is, 1901, Frederick Maitland. They, the book is called The Crown as Corporation. I'll just read to you some salient bits that I've highlighted. Quote, some corporations are made by the king, others by the pope, others by both king and pope. Skipping forward, the king, he and his subjects together compose the corporation. He is incorporated with them and they with him. He is the head and they are the members and he has the sole government of them. Skipping his majesty, his heirs and successors in his politic capacity, which in consideration of law never dies. Skipping forward, the public first becomes prominent in connection with the national debt. Skipping forward, some proceedings of one of his predecessors who closed the exchequer and ruined the goldsmiths had made our king no good borrower, so the public had to take his place. The money might be advanced to his majesty, quote-unquote, but the public had to owe it. This idea could not be kept off the statute book. Whereas, said an act of 1786, the public stands indebted to the East India Company in a sum of four millions and more. Skipping forward, we may trace the beginnings of a national debt back to days when a king borrows money and charges the repayment of it upon a specific tax. Of course, what did Samuel warn the Israelites about kings skipping? But then comes the lawyer with theories in his head and begins placing a legal estate in what he calls the crown or her majesty. Skipping forward, unquote there. This looks like a back to the words of James Montgomery. 
Even the postmaster general was used to secure the king's possessions in America and was a vehicle used by the king through the president and his powers as commander-in-chief to expand the king's land west via the king's law going west with the laws governing the mail. After that is a quote from President Monroe arguing that such powers were not being used and did not exist. He would no doubt have to eat a huge amount of crow today if he was alive today and saw the Department of Transportation and the power they have been granted over the nation's roads and skies. You will also see the need for the king to incorporate and that a grant of sovereign land ownership was given to the War Department. Sounds like a military's loyalty was bought and paid for, leading up to conquest of America after the Civil War. The following is from Frederick Maitland, again, 1901. Quote, In 1840, the Postmaster General and his successors is and are made a body corporate for the purpose of holding and taking conveyances and leases of lands and hereditaments for the service of the post office. From the act that effected this incorporation, we may learn that the postmaster, as a mere individual, had been holding land in trust for the crown. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons, I take it, for erecting some new corporation's soul was that our crown being more or less identifiable with the king, it was difficult to make the crown a leaseholder or copyholder in a direct and simple fashion. Okay, skipping forward, there's a lot more here, but it's all citations from law libraries that James Montgomery dug up. Uh, oh, this is interesting. I highlighted this. Let's see. This comes from, looks like Blackstone Commentaries, Book 3, page 1554, 5. Quote, the Federal Reserve, sister of the Exchequer. Is that really from that? No. This is, oh, this is from uh, Ballantyne's Law Dictionary. Quote, Exchequer, the English Department of Revenue, a very ancient court of record set up by William the Conqueror, intended principally to order the revenues of the crown and to recover the king's debts and duties. It was called exchequer from the checked cloth resembling a chessboard which covers the table, unquote. This is from Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition. Quote, exchequer, that department of the English government which has charge of the collection of the national revenue, the treasury department, unquote. This is from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, quote, Exchequer, in English law, a department of the government which has the management of the collection of the king's revenue. All right. So again, uh, Montgomery writes about that. The Federal Reserve is the sister of the Exchequer of Britain. Oh, wow. Montgomery includes here the definition of a legal fiction and how it 
how it relates to being a corporation and not a person. Then he includes the Statute of Mortmain from 1279, which declares that the king could never make treaties which would give up any, any claim of his uh, posterity, ever. Oh, boy. Is that it? Um, this is, wow. He's got a citation here from 1992. An executive order that further proves the American people do not own any land in America. Wow. Okay, well, skip that. And then here, he's got a citation, a footnote, from a Senator Owen in the Congressional Record of 1916. Holy mackerel. I think I need to read this. Senator Owen, quote, This holy alliance, having put a Bourbon prince upon the throne of France by force, then used France to suppress the condition of Spain, Immediately afterwards, and by this very treaty, gave her a subsidy of 20 million francs annually to enable her to wage war upon the people of Spain and prevent their exercise of any measure of the right of self-government. The Holy Alliance immediately did not do the same thing in Italy by sending Austrian troops to Italy where the people there attempted to exercise a like measure of liberal constitutional self-government. If you've read the works of Chuck Wilcox, you know where this is going. And it was not until the printing press, which the Holy Alliance so stoutly opposed, taught the people of Europe the value of liberty, that finally one country after another seized a greater and greater right of self-government until now it may be fairly said that nearly all the nations of Europe of a very large measure of self-government. Not anymore. However, says Senator Owen, I wish to call the attention of the Senate to this important history in the growth of constitutional popular self-government. The Holy Alliance made its powers felt by the wholesale drastic suppression of the press in Europe, by universal censorship, by killing free speech and all ideas of popular rights, and by the complete suppression of popular government. The Holy Alliance, having destroyed popular government in Spain and Italy, had well laid plans also to destroy popular government in the American colonies, which had revolted from Spain and Portugal in Central and South America under the influence of the successful example of the United States. It was because of this conspiracy... Yes, he used the word conspiracy, folks. This conspiracy against the American republics by the European monarchs that the great English statesman Canning called the attention of our government to it. And our statesmen then, including Thomas Jefferson, who was still living at that time, took an active part to bring about the declaration by President Monroe in his next annual message to the Congress of the United States that the United States would regard it as an act of hostility 
to the government of the United States and an unfriendly act if this coalition or if any power of Europe ever undertook to establish upon the American continent any control of any American republic or to acquire any territorial rights. This is the so-called Monroe Doctrine, the threats under the secret treaty of Verona to suppress popular government in the American republics is the basis of the Monroe Doctrine. Boy, we're never told that. Never, never in American schools. This secret treaty sets forth clearly the conflict between monarchical government and popular government, and the government of the few as against the government of the many. Unquote that from Senator Owen, Congressional Record, 1916. And then he includes a footnote, a certain oath to a certain secret society that is a very vicious and bloodthirsty oath. Okay, folks, that, uh, that concludes. The United States is still a British colony. This last chapter, American land ownership, a true oxymoron. This work by... James Montgomery, you can access it, go go to the, his site from uh, the link, I'll put it up. I'm Gordon Comstock, this has been the Ministry of Truth, over and out. This is the Ministry of Truth, I'm Gordon Comstock, I'm going to get into another book. Now, uh, it's actually a, a long essay, rather, and it's online, you can access this for free, and uh, all the other works by this extremely assiduous researcher off of his website uh, for free. And uh, they're worth more than probably, but one of his essays is probably worth more than any other book on your uh, bookshelf. Seriously. And yet you can access this for free. I uh, printed up all of his essays and uh, have them. Uh, arranged like books on just on regular printer paper, one-sided, because my printer only does one side, but I've got them all on my bookshelf. Uh, they are a prized possession, really. Uh, I can't, I want to say I can't believe what this researcher found out and his cohort found the same thing out independently, and they're both, they both share the same website. Uh, I originally didn't believe it, it took some prodding from my good buddy Visigoth to convince me, because I started to have one of those knee-jerk reactions again when I first heard this stuff. I thought, come on, this is baloney, this is crazy. Same reaction I had when I heard the stuff about the Vatican uh, murdering, at the, at being at the top of the conspiracy to murder Abraham Lincoln and uh, all of our other presidents who've ever been poisoned. I had that same knee-jerk a purely emotional reaction that, that blocks out your intellectual process. And doggone it, it's the same reaction that your average Joe has when you tell him anything truthful that's not in the mainstream news, and that's basically anything truthful. And, and then they jump to that knee-jerk, purely emotional, anti-intellectual, anti-cerebral reaction, and they tell you, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I've... Uh 
and that just shows how much he's brainwashed, yada, yada, yada. But uh, I had that a couple of times. I, 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 even after I was mostly, I would say, awakened to the reality of the world around us. And it took uh, Visigoth both times to uh, take me aside and say, bro, you need to do the homework before you make a decision on this. Don't just make a decision out of ignorance, basically. And coming from a guy like that, uh, that really brought me up short. And I went and did the research, and I found out the guy, oh, man, it was true. And it was true, and the wizard is behind the curtain, and the wizard is more more mysterious and elaborate and larger than life. And that wizard behind the curtain gets bigger all the time. Wow. Another thing Visigoth and I have noticed, though, together, very, very few people, even amongst those who listen to folks like us and and, and come on our shows and write books and and show they're mostly awake, they they know the reality of the world, that the whole world lies in delusion. Nevertheless, even those people, when they come across something that's too outrageous, they shut down, just like I started to do and and Biz helped me through both times. People just shut down and and they can't deal with it and they they dismiss it, it just out of pure emotions and complete lack of gray matter. So that even happens, and it's happened a few times with former guests of mine and biz and we just kind of let those people go their ignorant way until they wake up because they wouldn't listen to us they wouldn't stop their emotional reaction and do their homework and uh anyway uh i think i i mentioned last month there were a couple of listeners who came up and visited me and we had uh black and tans and cigars and at, at the local Irish pub here, and it was it was great. It was great uh, talking to two brothers about stuff that uh, men are too damn ignorant to know anymore. The truth, men in America. But it, but uh, one of them alerted me and uh, sent since then uh, sent me the link to a book. I'm gonna. Get, and I I had planned on getting into that book with the next one. I'm gonna get to that book uh, next after this one because that book does appear very significant. Now that's a real book. That's that's a good sized book, and, and it's out of print from the 1800s. And uh, boy, he knows what it is, and it's, it deals with familiar subject matter to this show and all of that. But anyway, with this book, with this essay. I need to read this. This guy is actually this uh, researcher. His name is James Montgomery. He and his researching cohort, the informer, independently, completely uh, for the for years prior to having met, at least, they uh, came to the same conclusion from years of. Uh, very painstaking research in law libraries and uh, places, university libraries, I suppose, but they researching old documents, they, they basically proved that the, as the title of this essay tells, the United States is still a British colony. And uh, this guy, J- James Montgomery, 
you, you go to ATGPress.com. It stands for AgainstTheGrainPress.com. Click on, well, you can click on the informer. He tells you the same stuff through a lot of essays. Uh, I prefer, and the same stuff, that's right. I prefer clicking on Knowledge is Freedom, uh, and then you get to the work of this guy, James Montgomery. James Montgomery is uh, noticeably better at editing. Uh, both of them could use a, a proofreader, an editor, because they didn't have one. And any, any person who writes a book, uh, whether anybody, you, you need an editor. But when you're a small-time, one-horse operation and, and you're writing, that's all you, you got yourself. And so there's going to be type errors. There's going to be grammatical errors. Uh, and there's a few here with James Montgomery. I just found that there's a lot with uh, the informer, and it, at times, although his research is impeccable, it makes it hard to read. Uh, I know the informer harps on the importance of diagramming sentences in school, and uh, I don't know, it's a little hypocritical because he doesn't really write that well. Uh, he can't diagram his own sentences, basically, as he's writing them. Uh, anyway, he means well. His research is fantastic. He needs help in his writing, the informer. James Montgomery is a little more clear. Um, he's a better writer, basically. They're both about the same as far as... Uh, Researching power, researching depth. Now, and both of them have written numerous articles, numerous long essays documenting all of this. This is just one, and it's entitled, again, The United States is Still a British Colony. Uh, this, maybe this is, maybe it's just the title that makes this essay jump out the most at at the online viewer. Nevertheless, all of the articles on there, click on, go to atgpress.com, click on Knowledge is Freedom, read the research articles of James Montgomery. There's a wealth of materials there, and they all are fantastic and in-depth. And guess what? They're all irrefutable. Trust me. <laughs> you'll find out. You'll, you'll, you'll get the upset stomach. You'll, you'll get nauseated. You've been lied to, folks. The United States is still a British colony. And so this is the essay we are going to get into on the Ministry of Truth. Now, the reason I want to take a detour and read this, I didn't plan on reading this uh, next, but I've been hearing people close to me, people I trust, people who are dear friends of mine, companions, cohorts, and brothers in the faith of mine who I hear them starting to appeal to the Constitution again. And that troubles me because they have heard some of this material. So I decided, well, you obviously haven't read it in any depth or else you would not be appealing to the Constitution, even though you've been told a number of times now by the legendary Visigoth and, and myself that uh, the Constitution was a fraud, a total fraud. The Founding Fathers were lawyers, they were liars, they were frauds. They sold out their own people. The United States, the colonies, never won the Revolutionary War. It was a backdoor Masonic deal to limit the battle damage, make it look like a war, 
and keep the profits going for England and for the wealthy, elitist, lawyerly families like the founding quote-unquote fathers in the colonies. And basically, the, really, the reason it appeared for so long that Americans had these rights and so-called rights and freedoms for so long, for first a few decades anyway, after the Revolutionary War, it was mostly to do with geography, folks. It, it was not in the documents of the Constitution. The Constitution does not apply to the common man, as we're about to find out. Not even the Declaration of Independence applies to the common man, as we are about to find out. And if you go back in history, things like even the Magna Carta, they're worthless documents. They're worth about the same as a toilet paper roll, the Magna Carta was. Completely worthless. James Montgomery will show you. He documents it. For one thing, this uh, King John that was forced by the nobles in England to sign the Magna Carta. Well, the Pope immediately uh, declared the Magna Carta null and void. And uh, King John, by the way, a few years prior had given England to the Pope. So it wasn't, England was not King John's to give away to these barons, these noblemen, forcing at sword point the Magna Carta upon King John. Uh, and here, oh, there you go. It's also, it's a document signed under duress. And even today, we know a document signed under duress is not a legal document. So the Magna Carta was worthless. Basically, folks, here, here's, here's the... Here it is in a nutshell. I, I hope I can get it down to that. Folks, the common man, you have no rights except for those that Jesus Christ gave you as a saved soul, but... He liberated your soul, if you will take the uh, sacrifice, take, take, take the opportunity he gave you. But you're not gonna, your body is not going to have any actual rights until Jesus Christ returns and rules the earth with a rod of iron. Until then, everything you have that you think are rights, they are actually privileges. And that we, 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 we are in slavery, we always have been, and it's, it's just, a, it's remarkable that even people who get it, even people who are very close to me, who know that everything's a fraud around us, the whole world lies in a strong delusion that because of our sinful ways, God has given us over unto. And Satan loves deceiving the whole world, and Revelation tells us that. He's got the whole world deluded, does Satan. And everything on your mainstream news, flip it upside down if you want the truth. 9-11 was a fraud. The Oklahoma City bombings was a fraud. Flight uh, Korean airline 007 that was shot down in Russia was a fraud. Nothing uh, TWA uh, 800 that was shot down off the coast of what, New Jersey, that was a fraud. Pearl Harbor, the Lusitania, the, the, bomb, the, the explosion of the Maine, the Gulf of Tonkin, on and on 
and on, the, the stock market crash, the Federal Reserve, even people who know that all of those are frauds and, if, and the truth is completely, almost completely reverse what mainstream news tells us, even those who get it and are, and are Christian, even those, and, and they've been guests on my show, <laughs> really except for Biz, uh, they all still will hearken back occasionally to this constitution as being somehow a fount of, of liberty for Americans, and they don't know that it's completely faulty. They, they should know better, basically, is what I'm trying to say, because the constitution, you're still dealing there with man's law. It's weird. The propaganda you're fed in school about the the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution. It's like people who really get it, and, and already you're in rarefied company if you get it and you understand that, that history is a fraud. And then, if you understand that the Bible, that God's Word is true, the real God's Word. I mean, you're, there aren't very many people who do that, but once you get to that point, it's weird. Even those people will still latch on. They'll say, yeah, all history's been a fraud, basically. And the only thing we can trust is God's true word. However, there was this one time in history, this one completely atypical time, when you had a few honorable lawyer, lawyers get together in, the, in colonial America and, and write this wonderful document to set mankind free. That was the one time when mankind became noble. The one time when, when no lawyers became noble. That was it. The one time. And they were, come on. Doesn't that right there, the picture I just painted, all of mankind's history, all of mankind's laws, it's all about tyranny, and profits is what it's really all about, profits. But there was this one time when it, that didn't apply, the, <laughs> the, the U.S. Revolution, the Revolutionary War and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. That was the one time where mankind became noble. Give, stop and think about that. Would the Lord really allow that to happen? Allow there to be one time in history where humans where elitist humans suddenly became not elitists and, and became truthful and told the truth and weren't about profits and wanted to rule a country not about profits. They weren't driven just by profits. They wanted to be truthful as God's word is truthful. Do you think God would really allow that to happen? No. All of mankind's history... It, 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 oh, and the Constitution, oh, it was set up a Calvinist republic. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. How many times does it mention Jesus Christ in the document? Zero. Okay, how many times does it uh, mention, does the Declaration of Independence mention Jesus Christ? Zero. Okay, but it mentions God uh, and, and Lord. Well, gee, the, the founding framers were mostly Freemasons, and the Freemasons have their God and Lord, who is actually the ancient Baal deity, and they now call him the great architect of the universe, but it's no different than ancient Bel or Baal worship. It's, it's just amazing. It's so frustrating. Well, anyway, that's why 
belatedly, I'm, t- I'm telling you, I'm finally getting to the point. This is why I have to read this. You, folks, you need to listen. If you have any faith in the Constitution, stop and listen to this, please. I took the trouble of doing my homework in this area. I took the trouble of spending my money on paper and ink, printing all of this up, these voluminous essays from both the informer and James Montgomery. It fills up half a bookshelf, half a long bookshelf in my my, uh, office room that's running out of room. And I read them all, and I highlighted them all. As I read, I made notes on them all, And I'm telling you, even if you just listen, stop what you're doing and listen to just this one article by James Montgomery, you'll be totally convinced. It's irrefutable. The Constitution was a fraud. The founding framers were lawyers. They were frauds. The Declaration of Independence did not ever apply to the common American you and me. It was a corporate deal, a Masonic corporate backdoor lawyer deal. And the United States is still a British colony. Written, this was written in 1996 by James Montgomery. The trouble with history is we weren't there when it took place. And it can be changed to fit someone's belief and or traditions. Or it can be taught in the public schools to favor a political agenda and withhold many facts. I know you have been taught that we won the Revolutionary War and defeated the British, but I can prove to the contrary. I want you to read this paper with an open mind and allow yourself to be instructed with the following verifiable facts. You be the judge, and don't let prior conclusions on your part or incorrect teaching keep you from the truth. I, too, was always taught in school and in studying our history books that our freedom came from the Declaration of Independence and was secured by our winning the Revolutionary War. I'm going to discuss a few documents that are included at the end of this paper in the footnotes. The first document is the first charter of Virginia in 1606. See footnote one. In the first paragraph, the King of England granted our forefathers license to settle and colonize America. The definition for license is as follows, from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914, quote, in government regulation, authority to do some act or carry on some trade or business, in its nature lawful, but prohibited by statute, except with the permission of the civil authority, or which would otherwise be unlawful, unquote. Keep in mind, those that came to America from England were British subjects. 
So you can better understand what I'm going to tell you, here are the definitions for subject and citizen. Again, Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914. Quote, in monarchical governments by subject is meant one who owes permanent allegiance to the monarch, unquote. The following is from the fifth edition of Black's Law Dictionary, quote, constitutional law, one that owes allegiance to a sovereign and is governed by his laws. The natives of Great Britain are subjects of the British government. Men in free governments are subjects as well as citizens. As citizens, they enjoy rights and franchises. As subjects, they are bound to obey the laws. The term is little used in this sense in countries enjoying a republican form of government, unquote. I chose to give the definition for subject first, so you could better understand what definition of citizen is really being used in American law. Below is the definition of citizen from Roman law, from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914. Quote, the term citizen was used in Rome to indicate the possession of private civil rights, including those accruing under the Roman family and inheritance law, and the Roman contract and property law. All other subjects were peregrines. But in the beginning of the third century, the distinction was abolished, and all subjects were citizens. Unquote. The king was making a commercial venture when he sent his subjects to America and used his money and resources to do so. I think you would admit the king had a lawful right to receive gain and prosper from his venture. In the Virginia Charter, he declares his sovereignty over the land and his subjects, and in paragraph 9, he declares the amount of gold silver, and copper he is to receive if any is found by his subjects. There could have just as easily been none, or his subjects could have been killed by the Indians. This is why this was a valid right of the king. See Black's fourth edition, Jure Coine, quote, in the right of the crown, unquote. The king expended his resources with the risk of total loss. If you'll notice in paragraph 9, the king declares that all his heirs and successors were to also receive the same amount of gold, silver, and copper that he claimed with this charter. The gold that remained in the colonies was also the king's. He provided the remainder as a benefit for his subjects, which amounted to further use of his capital. You will see in this paper that not only is this valid, but it is still in effect 
today. If you will read the rest of the Virginia Charter, you will see that the king declared the right and exercised the power to regulate every aspect of commerce in his new colony. A license had to be granted for travel connected with transfer of goods, i.e. commerce, right down to the furniture they sat on. A great deal of the king's declared property was ceded to America in the Treaty of 1783. I want you to stay focused on the money and the commerce which was not ceded to America. This brings us to the Declaration of Independence. Our freedom was declared because the king did not fulfill his end of the covenant between king and subject. The main complaint was taxation without representation, which was reaffirmed in the early 1606 charter granted by the king. It was not a revolt over being subject to the king of England. Most wanted the protection and benefits provided by the king. Because of the king's refusal to hear their demands and grant relief, separation from England became the lesser of two evils. The cry of freedom and self-determination became the rallying cry for the colonists. The slogan, Don't Tread on Me, was the standard borne by the militias. The Revolutionary War was fought and concluded when Cornwallis surrendered to Washington at Yorktown. As Americans, we have been taught that we defeated the king and won our freedom. The next document I will use is the Treaty of 1783, which will totally contradict our having won the Revolutionary War. See footnote 2. I want you to notice in the first paragraph that the king refers to himself as prince of the Holy Roman Empire and of the United States. You know from this that the United States did not negotiate this treaty of peace in a position of strength and victory but it is obvious that Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, and John Adams negotiated a treaty of further granted privileges from the King of England. Keep this in mind as you study these documents. You also need to understand the players of those that negotiated this treaty. For the Americans, it was Benjamin Franklin Esquire, a great patriot and standard-bearer of freedom, or was he? His title includes Esquire. An Esquire, in the above usage, was a granted rank and title of nobility by the king, which is below knight and above a yeoman or common man. An esquire is someone 
that does not do manual labor as signified by this status. See the below definitions from Blackstone's commentaries, quote, Esquires, by virtue of their offices, as justices of the peace, and others who bear any office of trust under the crown, for whosoever studieth the laws of the realm, who studieth in the universities, who professeth the liberal sciences, and who can live idly and without manual labor, and will bear the port, charge, and countenance of a gentleman, he shall be called master, and he shall be taken for a gentleman, unquote. The following is from Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition, quote, Esquire, in English law, a title of dignity next above gentleman and below knight. Also, a title of office given to sheriffs, sergeants, and barristers at law, justices of the peace, and others, unquote. Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay, as you can read in the treaty, were all esquires, and were the signers of this treaty, and the only negotiators of the treaty. The representative of the king was David Hartley, Esquire. Benjamin Franklin was the main negotiator for the terms of the treaty. He spent most of the war traveling between England and France. The use of Esquire declared his and the others British subjection and loyalty to the crown. In the first article of the treaty, most of the king's claims to America are relinquished, except for his claim to continue receiving gold, silver, and copper as gain for his business venture. Article 3 gives Americans the right to fish the waters around the United States and its rivers. In Article 4, the United States agreed to pay all bona fide debt. If you will read my other papers on money, you will understand that the financiers were working with the king. Why else would he protect their interest with this treaty? Side note, boy, does that ever dovetail with the last book I just completed, The Babylonian Woe by David Astle, where Astle is always uh, remarking on the, the shadowy powers the truth, the powers behind this, the throne, the money powers are always there in any civilization. They're the real powers, but you never see them or you seldom see them. <clears throat> but the front man, whatever king or tyrant they put forth, will always look, look out for them, will always protect them. And here we go, the king of England protecting their interests in the Treaty of uh, 1783. Okay. I wonder if you have seen the main and obvious point. This treaty was signed in 1783. The war was over in 1781. If the United States defeated England, how 
is the king of England granting rights to America when we were now supposedly his equal in status? We supposedly defeated him in the Revolutionary War. So why would these supposed patriot Americans sign such a treaty when they knew that this would void any sovereignty gained by the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War. If we had won the Revolutionary War, the king granting us our land would not be necessary. It would have been ours by his loss of the Revolutionary War. To not dictate the terms of a peace treaty in a position of strength after winning a war means the war was never won. Think of other wars we have won, such as when we defeated Japan. Did General MacArthur allow Japan to dictate to him the terms for surrender? No way. All these men, these quote-unquote, founding fathers. All they did is gain status and privilege granted by the king and ensure the subjection of future unaware generations. Worst of all, they sold out those that gave their lives and property for the chance to be free. You know, that totally ties in today with the wars going on overseas, the wars for empire in Afghanistan and Iraq. Who's largely, foolishly, <laughs> pathetically sending their boys off to be, and now they're girls, and now they're daughters. How, how, oh, how tragically, how insultingly the ignorance, the shamefulness of it. But, Who's sending their children off to be cannon fodder nowadays? Oh, it's the patriotic Americans who call themselves Christians by and large, isn't it? Come on, you know you've met them. Come on, they've got flags up on their cars, and they quote that they have a constitution that they've never read, and they've got a Bible that they've never read, but boy, they're Christians and they're patriot Americans, aren't they? And they're sending their boys and now girls overseas to be cannon fodder. Well, guess what? You hear these stories. Uh, in the Revolutionary War of, uh, what was it, the Black Brigade? The, the preachers in the colonies who led up the militias and, and had uh, called out the militias and the Minutemen to, uh, to go fight the British. And they did a stellar job on the battlefield. What they did was totally brave. However, they were also completely sold out, and what they, it accomplished nothing because they were sold out at the top. And so even you see back then, Christians picking up the sword, picking up the rifle to go and fight. And all it gets them is killed and sold out and taken advantage of back then because their, their leaders back then sold them out. And it's still happening today. Foolish Christians or people calling themselves Christians are fighting the battles of the oligarchs. They're fighting the battles of the enemy, of Satan. And yet they're Christian, at least calling themselves Christian, and maybe well, I'm sure some of them, a lot of them are. Anyway, history doesn't change.
Think of your redneck Christian over there fighting, fighting for democracy and liberty in Afghanistan. That's what you had fighting the revolution, the revolutionary war then. Anyway, here we go. Back to the essay. When Cornwallis surrendered to Washington, he surrendered the battle, folks, but he did not surrender the war. Read the article of capitulation signed by Cornwallis at Yorktown. See footnote three. Jonathan Williams recorded in his book, Legions of Satan, printed in 1781, that Cornwallis revealed to Washington during his surrender that, quote, a holy war will now begin on America, and when it is ended, America will be supposedly the citadel of freedom, but her millions will unknowingly be subjects to the crown. In less than 200 years, the whole nation will be working for divine world government. That government that they believe to be divine, will be the British Empire, unquote. Wow, was that really written in 1781? Apparently so, folks. All the treaty did was remove the United States as a liability and obligation of the king. He no longer had to ship material and money to support his subjects and colonies. At the same time, he retained financial subjection through debt owed after the treaty, which is still being created today, millions of dollars a day. And his heirs and successors are still reaping the benefit of the king's original venture. That, folks, that means that in the 1980s, when you saw that big extravagant wedding on all the channels in America of uh, Princess Di's wedding to Prince Charles. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that because we paid for it. <laughs> you paid for it, folks. Yes, yes, we'll get to that. <clears throat> we'll get to the proof on that. If you will read the following quote from Title 26, you will see just one situation where the king is still collecting a tax from those that receive a benefit from him on property which is purchased with the money the king supplies at almost the same percentage. Ooh, boy. Next up is uh, some IRS legalese. Should I get into that? Uh, let's give it, I'll get into a little bit. Site 26 USC section 1491. Head, Section 1491, Imposition of Tax. Statute, there is hereby imposed on the transfer of property by a citizen or a resident of the United States, or by a domestic corporation or partnership, or by an estate or trust which is not a foreign estate or trust, to a foreign corporation as paid in surplus or as a contribution to capital, or to a foreign estate or trust, or to a foreign partnership, an excise tax equal to 35% of the excess of, one, the fair market value of the property so transferred over, two, the sum of, A, the adjustment basis for determining gain of such property in the hands of the transfer, plus, B, the amount of the gain recognized to the transferer at the time of the transfer, source, 
Oh, yada, yada, yada. Amendments, yada, yada, yada. Oh, it's legalese. Oh, boy. <laughs> they were, this is it, man. This is why Jesus condemned these people. Writing its parallel, bizarro world language that only they can understand and that they twist uh, with situational ethics each time they read it. Vague, abstruse legalese. Let's, uh, effective date, 1976 amendment. Okay, going forward. Here we go. A new war was declared when the treaty was signed. The king wanted his land back, and he knew he would be able to regain his property for his heirs with the help of his world financiers. Here is a quote from the king speaking to Parliament after the Revolutionary War had concluded. This is six weeks after the capitulation of Yorktown. The King of Britain, in his speech to Parliament, November 27th, 1781, declared, quote, that he should not answer the trust committed to the sovereign of a free people if he consented to sacrifice either to his own desire of peace or to their temporary ease and relief, those essential rights and permanent interests upon the maintenance and preservation of which the future strength and security of the country must forever depend, unquote. The determined language of this speech, pointing to the continuance of the American war, was echoed back by a majority of both lords and commons. In a few days after, on December 12th, it was moved in the House of Commons that a resolution should be adopted declaring it to be their opinion, quote, that all farther attempts to reduce the Americans to obedience by force would be ineffectual and injurious to the true interests of Great Britain, unquote. The rest of the debate can be found in footnote four. What were the true interests of the king, the gold, silver, and copper? The new war was to be fought without Americans being aware that a war was even being waged. It was to be fought by subterfuge and key personnel being placed in key positions. The first two parts of my other essay, A Country Defeated in Victory, that's another great essay James Montgomery wrote, A Country Defeated in Victory, it's about the Revolutionary War, go into detail about how this was done and exposes some of the main players. Every time you pay a tax, you are transferring your labor to the king, and his heirs and successors are still receiving interest from the original American charters. The following is the definition of tribute or tax. Quote, a contribution which is raised by a prince or sovereign from his subjects to sustain the expenses of the state. A sum of money paid by an inferior sovereign or state to a superior potentate 
to secure the friendship or protection of the latter, unquote. This is from Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition. As further evidence, not that any is needed, a percentage of taxes that are paid are to enrich the king or queen of England. For those that study Title 26, you will recognize IMF, which means Individual Master File. All taxpayers have one. To receive one, you have to be able to break their codes using File 6209, which is about 467 pages. On your IMF, you will find a blocking series which tells you what type of tax you are paying. You will probably find a 300 to 399 blocking series, which 6209 says is reserved. You then look up the BMF 300 to 399, which is the business master file in 6209. You would have seen prior to 1991, this was U.S. slash U.K. tax claims non-refile DLN, meaning everyone is considered a business and involved in commerce, and you are being held liable for a tax via a treaty between the U.S. and the U.K., payable to the UK. The form that is supposed to be used for this is Form 8288, FERTA, Foreign Investment Real Property Tax Account. You won't find many people using this form, just the 1040 form. The 8288 form can be found in the Law Enforcement Manual of the IRS, Chapter 3. If you will check the OMB's paper, Office of Management and Budget, in the Department of Treasury, lists of active information collections approved under Paperwork Reduction Act, you will find this form under OMB number 15450902, which says... U.S. Withholding Tax Return for Dispositions by Foreign Persons of U.S. Real Property Interests Statement of Withholding on Dispositions by Foreign Persons of U.S. Form Number 8288, Number 8288A. These codes have since been changed to read as follows. IMF 300-309, Barred Assessment, CP-55, Generated Valid for MFT-30, which is the code for 1040 form. IMF-310-399 Reserved. The BMF-300-309 reads the same as IMF-300-309. BMF-390-399 reads U.S. UK tax treaty claims. The long and short of it is nothing's changed. The government just made it plainer. The 1040 is the payment 
of a foreign tax to the king or queen of England. We have been in financial servitude since the Treaty of 1783. Read them and weep, folks. Read them and weep. Another treaty between England and the United States was Jay's Treaty of 1794, footnote 5. If you will remember from the Paris Treaty of 1783, John J. Esquire was one of the negotiators of the treaty. In 1794, he negotiated another treaty with Britain. There was great controversy among the American people about this treaty. In Article 2, you will see the king is still on land that was supposed to be ceded to the United States at the Paris Treaty. This is 13 years after America supposedly won the Revolutionary War. I guess someone forgot to tell the King of England. In Article 6, the King is still dictating terms to the United States concerning the collection of debt and damages. The British government and world bankers claimed that we owe in Article 12, we find the king dictating terms again, this time concerning where and with who the United States could trade. In Article 18, the United States agrees to a wide variety of material that would be subject to confiscation if Britain found said material going to its enemy's ports. Wait a minute. Who won the Revolutionary War? That's right. We were conned by some of our early forefathers into believing that we are free, that we are a sovereign people, when in fact we had the same status as before the Revolutionary War. I say had because our status today is far worse now than then. I will explain. Early on in our history, the king was satisfied with the interest made by the Bank of the United States. But when the bank charter was canceled in 1811, it was time to gain control of the government in order to shape government policy and public policy. Have you never asked yourself why the British, after burning the White House and all our early records during the War of 1812, why they left and did not take over the government? The reason they did, as much as they did do, was to remove the greatest barrier to their plans for this country. That barrier was the newly adopted 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. The purpose for this amendment was to stop anyone from serving in the government who was receiving a title of nobility or honor. 
it was and is obvious that these government employees would be loyal to the grantor of the title of nobility or honor. The War of 1812 served several purposes. It delayed the passage of the 13th Amendment by Virginia, allowed the British to destroy the evidence of the first 12 states' ratification of this amendment, and it increased the national debt, which would coerce Congress to reestablish the bank charter in 1816 after the Treaty of Ghent was ratified by the Senate in 1815. We'll stop there for this time, and we will get into this forgotten amendment, the original 13th Amendment next time, and your heads will flip. You will probably freak out when you hear this. The original 13th Amendment had nothing to do with the 13th Amendment that you know of today. Nothing at all. And it's the real main reason for the War of 1812. This is completely Twilight Zone-ish, erased, memory-hold history you are learning, and it's about to get a whole lot weirder next time on the Ministry of Truth. We have been reading, America is still a British colony by James Montgomery. This has been the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock, over and out. This is the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. Time for part two of the United States is still a British colony by James Montgomery. The Forgotten Amendment. The Articles of Confederation, Article 6 states, quote, Nor shall the United States in Congress assembled, and United is not capitalized, by the way, or any of them grant any title of nobility, unquote. The Constitution for the United States, United not capitalized, in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 states, quote, No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, United not capitalized, and no person holding any office or profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept any of the present emolument, office, or title, or of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state, unquote. Also, Section 10, Clause 1 states, quote, No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation. Grant letters of marquee or reprisal. Coin money. Emit bills of credit. Make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Pass any bill of attainder. Ex post facto of law impairing the obligation of contracts or grant any title of nobility. Unquote. 
There was, however, no measurable penalty for violation of the above sections. Congress saw this as a great threat to the freedom of Americans and our Republican form of government. In January 1810, Senator Reed proposed the original 13th Amendment. And it has nothing to do with the 13th Amendment you know of today. The original 13th Amendment, and on April 26, 1810, was passed by the Senate 26 to 1, and by the House 87 to 3 on May 1, 1810, and submitted to the 17 states for ratification. The amendment read as follows. Quote, If any citizen of the United States shall accept, claim, receive, or retain any title of nobility or honor, or shall, without the consent of Congress, accept and retain any present pension, office, or emolument, of any kind, whatever, from any emperor, king, prince, or foreign power, such person shall cease to be a citizen of the United States and shall be incapable of holding any office of trust or profit under them or either of them. Unquote. From an American Dictionary of the English Language, first edition, by Noah Webster, 1828, the definition of nobility is the third definition, the quality, quote, qualities which constitute distinction of rank in civil society according to the customs or laws of the country, that eminence or dignity which a man derives from birth or title conferred and which places him in an order above common men. And the fourth definition the persons collectively who enjoy rank above commoners, i.e. the peerage, unquote. The aforementioned sections in the Constitution for the United States and the above proposed 13th Amendment sought to prohibit the above definition, which would give any advantage or privilege to some citizens an unequal opportunity to achieve or exercise political power. Thirteen of the seventeen states listed below understood the importance of this amendment. The following states voted for the amendment between the years 1810 and 1819. How is that possible? Well, anyway, Maryland, Kentucky, Ohio, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Vermont, Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Virginia all voted in favor of the original 13th Amendment, with four states against New York, Connecticut, South Carolina, Rhode Island. Huh. Okay. On March 10th, 1819, the Virginia legislature passed Act Number 280, 
Virginia Archives of Richmond Miscellaneous File, page 299 for microfilm. This guy did his homework. He's looking at microfilm in the legal law archives of the state. Okay, the following quote. Be it enacted by the General Assembly that there shall be published an edition of the laws of this commonwealth in which shall be contained the following matters, that is to say, the Constitution of the United States and the amendments thereto, unquote. And United is not capitalized. The official day of ratification was March 12, 1819. This was the date of republication of the Virginia Civil Code. Virginia ordered 4,000 copies, almost triple their usual order. Word of Virginia's 1819 ratification spread throughout the states. And both Rhode Island and Kentucky published the new amendment in 1822. Ohio published the new amendment in 1824. Maine ordered 10,000 copies of the Constitution with the new amendment to be printed for use in the public schools and again in 1831 for their census edition. Indiana published the new amendment in the Indiana Revised Laws of 1831 on page 20. The Northwest Territories published the new amendment in 1833. Ohio published the new amendment again in 1831 and in 1833. Connecticut, one of the states that voted against the new amendment, published the new amendment in 1835. Wisconsin Territory published the new amendment in 1839. Iowa Territory published the new amendment in 1843. Ohio published the new amendment again in 1848. Kansas published the new amendment in 1855. And Nebraska Territory published the new amendment six years in a row from 1855 to 1860. Colorado Territory published the new amendment in 1865 and again 1867. In the 1867 printing, the present 13th Amendment, the Slavery Amendment, was listed as the 14th Amendment. The repeated reprinting of the amended United States Constitution is conclusive evidence of its passage. Also, as evidence of the new 13th Amendment's impending passage, on December 2nd, 1817, John Quincy Adams, then Secretary of State, wrote to Buck, an attorney, regarding the position Buck had been assigned. The letter reads, quote, if it should be the opinion of this government that the acceptance on your part of the commission under which it was granted did not interfere with your citizenship. It is the opinion of the executive that under the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, by the acceptance of such an appointment from any foreign government, a citizen of the United States ceases to enjoy that character and becomes incapable of holding any office of trust or profit 
under the United States or either of them. Unquote from John Quincy Adams. By virtue of these titles and honors and special privileges, lawyers have assumed political and economic advantages over the majority of citizens. Do you ever wonder, folks, why all of Congress are lawyers? This is why. And they've flushed the original 13th Amendment down the memory hole that was the amendment that would have stripped them of their citizenship and got them thrown out of this country. They have the nobility, the title of nobility, as an esquire, which shows their allegiance to the King of England. Back to the, the essay. A majority may vote, but only a minority, lawyers, may run for political office today. After the War of 1812 was concluded, the Treaty of Ghent was signed and ratified, see footnote 6. In Article 4 of the treaty, the United States gained what was already given in the Treaty of Paris in 1783, namely, islands off the U.S. coast. Also, two men were to be given the power to decide the borders and disagreements. If they could not, the power was to be given to an outside sovereign power, and their decision was final and considered conclusive. In Article 9, it is admitted there are citizens and subjects in America. As you have seen, the two terms are interchangeable, synonymous. In Article 10, you will see where the idea for the overthrow of this country came from and on what issue. The issue raised by England was slavery, and it was nurtured by the king's emissaries behind the scenes. This would finally lead to the Civil War, even though the Supreme Court had declared the state's and their citizens' property rights could not be infringed on by the United States government or Congress. This was further declared by the following presidential quotes, where they declared to violate the state's rights would violate the U.S. Constitution. Also, history shows that slavery would not have existed much longer in the southern states. Public sentiment was changing and slavery was quickly disappearing. The Civil War was about destroying property rights and the U.S. Constitution, which supported these rights. Read the following quotes of presidents just before the Civil War. Quote, I believe that involuntary servitude, as it exists in different states of this confederacy, is recognized by the Constitution. I believe that it stands like any other admitted right and that the states where it exists are entitled to efficient remedies to enforce the constitutional provisions. That's from Franklin Pierce's inaugural address, 1853, unquote. Quote, the whole territorial question being thus settled upon the principle of popular sovereignty a principle as ancient as free government itself, everything of a practical nature has been decided. 
no other question remains for adjustment. Because all agree that under the Constitution, slavery in the states is beyond the reach of any human power except that of the respected states themselves wherein it exists. Unquote that from James Buchanan's inaugural address, 1857. Quote, I cordially congratulate you upon the final settlement by the Supreme Court of the United States of the question of slavery in the territories, which had presented an aspect so truly formidable at the commencement of my administration. The right has been established of every citizen to take his property of any kind, including slaves, into the common territories belonging equally to all the states of the Confederacy, and to have it protected there under the federal Constitution. Neither Congress nor a territorial legislature, nor any human power, has any authority to annul or impair this vested right. The Supreme Judicial Tribunal of the country, which is a coordinate branch of the government, has sanctioned and affirmed these principles of constitutional law so manifestly just in themselves and so well calculated to promote peace and harmony among the states, unquote, that from James Buchanan's third annual message, 1859. So there is no misunderstanding. I am not re-arguing slavery. Slavery is morally wrong and contrary to God's almighty law. In this divisive issue, the true attack was on our natural rights and on the Constitution. The core of the attack was on our right to possess allodial property. Our God-given right to own property in allodial was taken away by conquest of the Civil War. If you are free, this right cannot be taken away. The opposite of free is slave or subject. We were allowed to believe we were free for about 70 years. Then the king said, enough and had the slavery issue pushed to the front by the northern press, which so formed northern public opinion, that they were willing to send their sons to die in the Civil War. The southern states were not fighting so much for the slave issue, but for the right to own property, any property. These property rights were granted by the king in the Treaty of 1783, knowing they would soon be forfeited by the American people through ignorance. Do you think you own your house? If you were to stop paying taxes, federal or state, you would soon find out that you were just being allowed to live and pay rent for this house, the rent being taxes to the king, who supplied the benefit of commerce. A free man, not under a monarch, democracy, dictatorship, or socialist government, but is under a republican form of government, would not, and could not, have his property taken. Why? The king's tax would not and could not be levied. If the Americans had been paying attention, the first 70 years, 
to the subterfuge and corruption of the Constitution and government representatives, instead of chasing the money supplied by the king, the conquest of this country during the Civil War could have been avoided. George Washington had vision during the Revolutionary War concerning the Civil War. You need to read it. See footnote 7. Civil War and the Conquest that Followed The government and press propaganda that the war was to free the black people from slavery is ridiculous. Once you understand the Civil War 13th and 14th Amendments, the black people are just as much slaves today as before the Civil War, just as the white people are today. And also, we find ourselves subjects to the king and queen of England. The only thing that changed for black people is they changed masters and were granted a few rights, which I might add can be taken away any time the government chooses. Since the 1930s, the black people have been paid reparations to buy off their silence. In other words, keep the slaves on the plantation working. I do not say this to shock or come across as prejudiced, because I'm not. Here's what Russell Means said. For those that don't remember who he is, he was the father in the movie The Last of the Mohicans. Russell Means said, quote, Until the white man is free, we will never be free, unquote. The we he was referring to were the Indians. There has never been a truer statement. However, the problem is the white people are not aware of their enslavement. At the risk of being redundant, to set the record straight, because Lord only knows what will be said about what I just said regarding black people, I believe that if you are born in this country, you are equal, period. Forget the empty promises of civil rights. What about your unalienable natural rights under God Almighty? All Americans are feudal tenants on the land, allowed to rent the property they live on as long as the king gets his cut. What about self-determination or being able to own a lodial title to property, which means the king cannot take your property for failure to pay a tax, which means you did not own it to begin with. The king allows you to use the material goods and land, Again, this is financial servitude. The ultimate ownership of all property is in the state. Individual so-called quote-unquote ownership is only by virtue of government, i.e. law, amounting to a mere user. And use must be in accordance with law and subordinate to the necessities of the state. That came from Senate document number 43, okay, written in 1933. The king controlled the government by the time the North won the Civil War through the use of lawyers that called the shots behind the scenes just as they do now. And well-placed subjects 
in the United States government. This would not have been possible if not for England destroying our documents in 1812 and the covering up of state documents of the original 13th Amendment. According to international law, what took place when the North conquered the South? First, you have to understand the word conquest in international law. When you conquer a state, you acquire the land, and those that were subject to the conquered state then become subject to the conquerors. The laws of the conquered state remain in force until the conquering state wishes to change all or part of them. At the time of conquest, the laws of the conquered state are subject to change or removal, which means the law no longer lies with the American people through the Constitution, but lies with the new sovereign. The Constitution no longer carries any power of its own, but derives its power from the new sovereign, the conqueror. The reason for this is the Constitution derived its power from the people, and when they were defeated, so was the Constitution. Uh, I'm a little... Montgomery's a little confusing there. Uh, derived its power from the people. Uh, anyway seems to contradict what he'd written earlier about the Constitution. I think he clears it up later. He probably means privileges for the people. The following is the definition of conquest. Quote, the acquisition of the sovereignty of a country by force of arms, exercised by an independent power which reduces the vanquished to submission to its empire. The intention of the conqueror to retain the conquered territory is generally manifested by formal proclamation of annexation, and when this is combined with a recognized ability to retain the conquered territory, the transfer of sovereignty is complete. A treaty of peace based upon the principle of uti posidetis is formal recognition of conquest. The effects of conquest are to confer upon the conquering state the public property of the conquered state and to invest the former with the rights and obligations of the latter. Treaties entered into by the conquered state with other states remain binding upon the annexing state and the debts of the extinct state must be taken over by it. Conquest likewise invests the conquering state with sovereignty over the subjects of the conquered state. Among subjects of the conquered state are to be included persons domiciled in the conquered territory who remain there after the annexation. The people of the conquered state change their allegiance, but not their relations to one another." Unquote. This from Liechtensdorfer versus Webb, uh, doesn't say the year. Quote, After the transfer of political jurisdiction to the conqueror, the municipal laws of the territory continue in force until abrogated by the new sovereign. 
that from Bouvier's Law Dictionary under Conquest International Law. So what happened after the Civil War? Did not U.S. troops force the southern states to accept the 14th Amendment? The laws of America, the Constitution, were changed by the conquering government. Why? The main part I want you to see, as I said at the beginning of this paper, is watch the money and the commerce. The 14th Amendment says the government debt cannot be questioned. Why? Because now the king wants all the gold, silver, and copper, and the land. Which can easily be done by increasing the government debt and making the American people sureties for the debt. This has been done by the sleight of hand of lawyers and the bankers. The conquering state is known as a belligerent. Read the following quotes. Belligerency is in international law. This is from Bouvier's Dictionary. The status, quote, the status of de facto statehood attributed to a body of insurgents by which their hostilities are legalized. Before they can be recognized as belligerents, they must have some sort of political organization and be carrying on what in international law is regarded as legal war. There must be an armed struggle between two political bodies each of which exercises de facto authority over persons within a determined territory and commands an army which is prepared to observe the ordinary laws of war. It is not enough that the insurgents have an army. They must have an organized civil authority directing the army. The exact point at which revolt or insurrection becomes belligerency is often extremely difficult to determine. And belligerents are not usually recognized by nations unless they have some strong reason or necessity for doing so. Either because the territory where the belligerency is supposed to exist is contiguous to their own, or because the conflict is in some way affecting their commerce or the rights of their citizens. One of the most serious results of recognizing belligerency is that it frees the parent country from all responsibility for what takes place within the insurgent lines. Uh, that, unquote, that from Bouvier's Law Dictionary. Again, from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, belligerent in international law, as adjective and noun. Engaged in lawful war, a state so engaged, in plural, a body of insurgents who by reason of their temporary organized government are regarded as conducting lawful hostilities. Also, militia, corps of volunteers, and others, who, although not part of the regular army of the state, are regarded as lawful combatants provided they observe the laws of war." Unquote. According to the international law, no law 
has been broken. Read the following about military occupation. Notice the third paragraph. After the Civil War, title to the land had not been completed to the conquerors, but after 1933 it was. I will address this in a moment. In the last paragraph, it says the commander-in-chief governs the conquered state. The proof that this is the case today is the U.S. flying the United States flag with a yellow fringe on three sides. According to the U.S. Code, Title IV, Section 1, the United States flag does not have a fringe on it. The difference being one is a constitutional flag and the fringed flag is a military flag. The military flag means you are in a military occupation and are governed by the commander-in-chief in his executive capacity, not under any constitutional authority. Read the following. Military occupation from Bouvier's Law Dictionary. Quote, this, at most, gives the invader certain partial and limited rights of sovereignty, military occupation. Until conquest, the sovereign rights of the original owner remain intact. Conquest gives the conqueror full rights of sovereignty and retroactively legalizes all acts done by him during military occupation. Its only essential is actual and exclusive possession, which must be effective. A conqueror may exercise governmental authority, but only when in actual possession of the enemy's country. And this will be exercised upon principles of international law. See McLeod versus U.S. The occupant administers the government and may, strictly speaking, change the municipal law, but it is considered the duty of the occupant to make as few changes in the ordinary administration of the laws as possible, though he may proclaim martial law if necessary. He may occupy public land and buildings. He cannot alienate them so as to pass a good title, but a subsequent conquest would probably complete the title. Private lands and houses are usually exempt. Private movable property is exempt, though subject to contributions and requisitions. The former are payments of money to be levied only by the commander-in-chief. Military necessity may require the destruction of private property and hostile acts of communities or individuals may be punished in the same way. Property may be liable to seizure as booty on the field of battle, or when a town refuses to capitulate and is carried by assault. When military occupation ceases, the state of things which existed previously is restored under the fiction of post-liminium, 
territory acquired by war must necessarily be governed in the first instance by military power under the direction of the president as commander-in-chief. Civil government can only be put in operation by the action of the appropriate political department of the government at such time and in such degree as it may determine. It must take effect either by the action of the treaty-making power or by that of Congress, so long as Congress has not incorporated the territory into the United States, neither military occupation nor cession by treaty makes it domestic territory in the sense of the revenue laws. Congress may establish a temporary government which is not subject to all the restrictions of the Constitution. See Downs versus Bidwell. Uh, that's uh, unquote. That all about uh, military occupation from Bouvier's Law Dictionary. Paragraph 1 through 3 of the definition of military occupation describes what took place during and after the Civil War. What took place during the Civil War and post-Civil War has been legal under international law. You should notice in paragraph 3 that at the end of the Civil War, title to the land was not complete but the subsequent conquest completed the title. What was the next conquest? That would be 1933, when the American people were alienated by our being declared enemies of the conqueror and by their declaring war against all Americans. Read the following quotes and also see footnote 8. The following are excerpts from the Senate report 93rd Congress, November 19, 1973, Special Committee on the Termination of the National Emergency United States Senate. Since March 9, 1933, the United States has been in a state of declared truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. Time for part three of the United States is still a British colony by James Montgomery. A military flag. And to further confirm and understand the significance of what I have told you in the previous two episodes, you need to understand the fringe on the United States flag. Read the following. First, the appearance of our flag is defined in Title IV, Section 1, U.S.C. Quote, the flag of the United States shall be 13 horizontal stripes, alternate red and white, and the union of the flag shall be 48 stars, white in a blue field. Unquote. Parentheses. My note. Of course, when new states are admitted, new stars are added in parentheses. A footnote was added on page 1113 of the same section, which says, quote, placing of fringe on the national flag, the dimensions of the flag and arrangement of the stars are matters of detail not controlled by statute, but within the discretion of the president as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. 
unquote. The president, as military commander, can add a yellow fringe to our flag. When would this be done? During a time of war. Why? A flag with a fringe is an ensign, a military flag. Read the following, quote, Pursuant to USC Chapter 1, 2, and 3, Executive Order, Number 10834, August 21st, 1959, 24FR6865. A military flag is a flag that resembles the regular flag of the United States, except that it has a yellow fringe bordered on three sides. The President of the United States designates this deviation from the regular flag by executive order and in his capacity as commander-in-chief of the armed forces, unquote. From the National Encyclopedia, Volume 4, quote, flag, an emblem of a nation, usually made of cloth and flown from a staff, from a military standpoint, flags are of two general classes. Those flown from stationary masts over army posts and those carried by troops in formation. The former are referred to by the general name flags. The latter are called colors when carried by dismounted troops. Colors and standards are more nearly square than flags and are made of silk with a knotted fringe of yellow on three sides. Dot, dot, dot. Use of the flag. The most general and appropriate use of the flag is as a symbol of authority and power, unquote. The following quote is from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914. Quote, The agency of the master is devolved upon him by the law of the flag. The same law that confers his authority ascertains its limits. And the flag at the masthead is noticed to all the world of the extent of such power to bind the owners or freighters by his act. The foreigner who deals with this agent has notice of that law, and if he be bound by it, there is not injustice. His notice is the national flag which is hoisted on every sea and under which the master sails into every port. And every circumstance that connects him with the vessel isolates that vessel in the eyes of the world and demonstrates his relation to the owners and freighters as their agent for a specific purpose and with power well-defined under the National Maritime Law, unquote. Don't be thrown by the fact they are talking about the sea and that it doesn't apply to land. Admiralty Law came onto land in 1845 with the Act of 1845 by Congress. Next, a quote from the court case Roostrat versus People. Quote, 
pursuant to the law of the flag, a military flag does result in jurisdictional implication when flown. The plaintiff cites the following. Under what is called international law, the law of the flag, a ship owner who sends his vessel into a port gives notice by his flag to all who enter into contracts with the shipmaster that he intends the law of the flag to regulate those contracts with the shipmaster that he either submit to its operation or not contract with him or his agent at all, unquote. I have had debates with folks that take great issue with what I have said. They dogmatically say the Constitution is the law and the government is outside the law. I wish they were right. But they fail to see or understand that the American people have been conquered, unknowingly, yet conquered all the same. That is why a judge will tell you not to bring the Constitution into his court or a law dictionary because he is the law, not the Constitution. You have only to read the previous Senate's report on national emergency to understand that the Constitution and our constitutional form of government no longer exists. Further evidence. Social security. I fail to understand how the American people could have been so dumbed down as to not see that the social security system is fraudulent and that it is based on socialism, which is the redistribution of wealth right out of the Communist Manifesto. The social security system, first, is fraud. It is insolvent and was never intended to be solvent. It is used for a national identification number and a requirement to receive benefits from the conqueror, i.e. king. The social security system is made to look and act like insurance. All insurance is governed by admiralty law, which is the king's way of binding those involved with commerce with him. The following quote is from Helvering versus Davis. Quote, The social security system may be accurately described as a form of social insurance enacted pursuant to Congress's power to spend money in aid of the general welfare, unquote. The following quote is from Federal Judge Story in Delovio versus Boyt from 1815, quote, My judgment accordingly is that policies of insurance are within the admiralty and maritime jurisdiction of the United States, unquote. You need to know and understand what contribution means in FICA, the Federal Insurance Contribution Act. Read the following definition. Contribution, from Black's Law Dictionary, 6th edition. The right of one who has discharged a common liability to recover 
of another also liable. The aliquot portion which he ought to pay or bear. Under principle of contribution, a tort feaser against whom a judgment is rendered is entitled to recover proportional shares of judgment from other joint tort feaser whose negligence contributed to the injury and who were also liable to the plaintiff. The share of a loss payable by an insurer when contracts with two or more insurers cover the same loss. The insurer's share of a loss under a coinsurance or similar provision. The sharing of a loss or payment among several. The act of any one or several of a number of co-debtors, co-sureties, etc., in reimbursing one of their number who has paid the whole debt or suffered the whole liability, each to the extent of his proportionate share, unquote. Thereby making you obligated for the national debt. The social security system is one of the contractual nexuses between you and the king because you are involved in the king's commerce and have asked voluntarily for his protection, you have accomplished the following. You have admitted that you are equally responsible for having caused the national debt and that you are a wrongdoer, as defined by the above definition. You have admitted to being a 14th Amendment citizen who only has civil rights granted by the king. By being a 14th Amendment citizen, you have agreed that you do not have standing in court to question the national debt. Keep in mind, this is beyond the status of our country and people, which I covered earlier in this paper. We are in this system of law because of the conquest of our country. Congress has transferred its constitutional obligation of coining money to the Federal Reserve, the representatives of the king. This began after the Civil War and the overturning of the U.S. Constitution as a result of conquest. You have used this fiat money without objection, which is a commercial benefit supplied by the king's bankers. Fiat money has no real value other than the faith in it, and you cannot pay a debt with fiat money because it is a debt instrument. A Federal Reserve note is a promise to pay and is only evidence of debt. The benefit you have received is you are allowed to discharge your debt, which means you pass on financial servitude to someone else. The someone else is our children. When you go to the grocery store and hand the clerk a $50 Federal Reserve note, you have stolen the groceries and passed $50 of debt to the seller. Americans try to acquire as much of this fiat money as they can. If Americans were aware of this, 
it wouldn't matter to them because they don't care if the merchandise is stolen as long as it is legal. But what happens if the system fails? Those with the most fiat money or real property, which was obtained with fiat money, will be forfeited to the king. Everything that was obtained with this fiat money reverts back to the king. I will explain in the conclusion of this paper. Because use of his fiat money is a benefit supplied by the king's bankers. It all, therefore, transfers back to the king. The king's claim to the increase in the country comes from the original charter of 1606. But it is all hidden. Black is white, and white is black. Wealth is actually debt and financial slavery. For those that do not have a social security number or think they have rescinded it, you are no better off. Well, there goes George Gordon's uh, argument, I think. As far as the king is concerned, you are subject to him also. Why? Well, just to list a couple of reasons other than conquest, you use his money, and as well, Gordon doesn't do that, and as I said before, this is discharging debt without prosecution. You use the goods and services that were obtained by this fiat money, well, maybe Gordon's all right, he doesn't do that either, to enrich your lifestyle and sustain yourself. You drive or travel, whichever definition you want to use, on the king's highways and roads for pleasure and to earn a living, meaning you are involved in the king's commerce. On top of these reasons, which are based on received benefits, this country has been conquered. I know a lot of patriots won't like this, your argument has been that the government has and is operating outside of the law, i.e. the United States Constitution. Believe me, I don't like sounding like the devil's advocate, but as far as international law goes, and the laws that govern war between countries, the king or queen of England rule this country, first by financial servitude, and then by actual conquest, and military occupation. The Civil War was the beginning of the conquest, as evidenced by the 14th Amendment. This amendment did several things, as already mentioned. It created the only citizenship available to the conquered and declared that these citizens had no standing in any court to challenge the monetary policies of the new government. Why? So the king would always receive his gain from his commercial venture. The amendment also eliminated your use of the natural rights and gave the conquered civil rights. The conquered are governed by public policy instead of republic of self-government under God Almighty. Your argument that this can't be is frivolous and without merit. The evidence is conclusive.
nothing has changed since before the Revolutionary War. All persons whose activities in King's commerce are such that they fall under this marine-like environment are into an invisible admiralty jurisdiction contract. Admiralty jurisdiction is the king's commerce of the high seas. And if the king is a party to the sea-based commerce, such as by the king having financed your ship or the ship is carrying the king's guns, then that commerce is properly governed by the special rules applicable to admiralty jurisdiction. But as for that slice of commerce going on out on the high seas without the king as a party, that commerce is called maritime jurisdiction, and so maritime is the private commerce that transpires in a marine environment. At least that distinction between admiralty and maritime is the way things once were, but no more. What Lincoln and Jefferson said about the true American danger was very prophetic. This quote is from Abraham Lincoln, quote, All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined could not, by force, take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. At what point, then, is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we ourselves must be its author and finisher, unquote. The following quote is from Thomas Jefferson, quote, Our rulers will become corrupt, our people careless. The time for fixing every essential right on a legal basis is now, while our rulers are honest and ourselves united. From the conclusion of this war, we shall be going downhill. It will not then be necessary to resort every moment to the people for support. They will be forgotten, therefore, and their rights disregarded. They will forget themselves, but in the sole faculty of making money, and will never think of uniting to effect a due respect for their rights. The shackles, therefore, which shall not be knocked off at the conclusion of this war, will remain on us long, will be made heavier and heavier, till our rights shall revive or expire in a convulsion. Unquote. Below are the political platforms of the Democrats and the Republicans. As you can see, there is no difference between the two. Plain socialism either way. They are both leading America to a world government, just as Cornwallis said, and that government will be the British Empire or promoted by the British. The following is from the Democratic Party platform of 1936. Quote, we have built foundations for the security of those who are faced with the hazards of unemployment and old age, for the orphaned, the crippled, and the blind. On the foundation of the Social Security Act, 
We are determined to erect a structure of economic security for all our people, making sure that this benefit shall keep step with the ever-increasing capacity of America to provide a high standard of living for all its citizens, unquote. The following is from the Republican Party platform of 1936. It's a bit longer here. Quote, Real security will be possible only when our productive capacity is sufficient to furnish a decent standard of living for all American families and to provide a surplus for future needs and contingencies. For the attainment of that ultimate objective, we look to the energy, self-reliance, and character of our people and to our system of free enterprise. Society has an obligation to promote the security of the people by affording some measure of protection against involuntary unemployment and dependency in old age. The New Deal policies, while purporting to provide social security, have in fact endangered it. We propose a system of old age security based upon the following principles. One, we approve a pay-as-you-go policy which requires of each generation the support of the aged and the determination of what is just and adequate. Two, every American citizen over 65 should receive a supplemental payment necessary to provide a minimum income sufficient to protect him or her of want. Three, each state and territory, upon complying with simple and general minimum standards, should receive from the federal government a graduated contribution in proportion to its own up to a fixed maximum. Four, to make this program consistent with sound fiscal policy, the federal revenues for this purpose must be provided from the proceeds of a direct tax widely distributed all will be benefited, and all should contribute. We propose to encourage adoption by the states and territories of honest and practical measures for meeting the problems of employment insurance. The unemployment insurance and old age annuity of the present Social Security Act are unworkable and deny benefits to about two-thirds of our adult population including professional men and women, and all engaged in agriculture and domestic service, and the self-employed, while imposing heavy tax burdens upon all." Unquote. Both platforms appear in National Party Platforms, 1840 to 1972, compiled by Ronald Miller in 1973. Conclusion. Jesus gave us the most profound warning and advice of all time. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed by a lack of knowledge. This being our understanding and spiritual development in his word. When applied to many facets of life, his word exposes all of life's pitfalls. Jesus Christ's word covers all aspects of life. 
the working class during the 1700s were far more educated than now, but this was still not enough to protect them from the secret subterfuge practiced by the lawyers and bankers. Only with understanding of Jesus Christ's word can the evil application of man's law be exposed and understood for what it is. This is why Jesus also warned of the beguilement of the lawyers and the deceit and deception they practice. Another reason, the working class have been unable to understand their enslavement is because of the time spent working for a living. At wages supplied by the upper class, sufficient to live and even prosper, but never enough to attain upper-class status. This is basic class warfare. This system is protected by the upper-class controlling public education to limit and focus the working class's knowledge to maintain class separation. What does this have to do with this paper? Everything. This is the reason our upper-class forefathers submitted to the king in the Treaty of 1783. After this treaty, and up to the Civil War, the working class were busy making this the greatest country in the history of the world. You see, they believed they were free. And a free man will work much harder than a man that is subject or a slave. As a whole, the working class were not paying attention to what the government was doing, including its treaties and laws. This allowed time for the banking procedures and laws to be put in place over time while the nation slept so the nation could be conquered during the Civil War. The only way to regain this country is with the re-education of the working class so they can make informed decisions and vote, well, good luck on that, vote the mismanagers of our government out of office. Uh, as Joseph Stalin said, it's not who votes, it's who counts the votes. We could then reverse the post-Civil War socialist laws and the one-world government laws that have been gradually put in place since the Civil War. Until the defeat of America is recognized, victory will never be obtainable. Only through reliance by faith on Jesus Christ and the teaching of his kingdom will we realize our freedom. As I said earlier, just as this country has been conquered, when Jesus Christ returns, he conquers all nations and takes possession of his kingdom and rules them with a rod of iron. Revelation 11:15-18 His right of ownership is enforced by the law God Almighty The following quote is from Thomas Jefferson quote And to preserve their independence we must not let our rulers load us with perpetual debt we must make our election between economy and liberty, or profusion and servitude. If we run into such debts as that 
we must be taxed in our meat and in our drink, in our necessaries and our comforts, in our labors and our amusements, for our callings and our creeds, as the people of England are, our people, like them, must come to labor 16 hours in the 24. Oh, yeah, that's what we have now. And give the earnings of 15 of these to the government for their debts and daily expenses. And the 16th being insufficient to afford us bread, we must live as they do now on oatmeal and potatoes or TV dinners or the wife's at work as well as the husband. And nobody's watching the child. Have not time to think, no means of calling the mismanagers to account, but be glad to obtain subsistence by hiring ourselves to rivet their chains on the necks of our fellow sufferers. Unquote. Boy, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, boy, he, could, he was so quotable and so brilliant, but at the same time, I, I, don't, I don't think he understood that uh, the people around him, the elitists around him, uh, sold us out, as James Montgomery documents. All right. Um, I'll just uh, briefly go through some highlights of the uh, voluminous footnotes uh, that... Uh, especially just for an essay, that, that James Montgomery includes here. It starts out with the original charter for Virginia. Uh, the next footnote, too, though. <clears throat> Look at this. The Paris Peace Treaty, which uh, supposedly ended the Revolutionary War with uh, the United States as supposedly the winner. Well, look how it starts here. This is from the... the, the Paris Peace Treaty, ending the Revolutionary War. It, having pleased the divine providence to dispose the hearts of the most serene and most potent Prince George III, and it lists all of his titles. One of them is uh, the Prince Elector of the Holy Roman Empire and the United States of America, to forget all past misunderstandings and differences that have unhappily interrupted the good correspondence and friendship which they mutually wish to restore. And it lists the fellow, it goes on from there, it lists the fellow co-signers, David Hartley, Esquire, John Adams, Esquire, Benjamin Franklin, Esquire, John J. Esquire. Those are all titles of nobility showing that all four of those men were subject still to the king of Britain. Uh, but uh, you will find that it's the king dictating the treaty here, dictating the terms of this treaty. The king, the supposed loser of this war, dictating the treaty. Uh, you see anything wrong with this picture? Uh, okay, check out Article 4 here. Look how they snuck this in. Article 4 of the peace treaty. It is agreed that creditors on either side shall meet with no lawful impediment to the recovery of the full value in sterling money of all bona fide debts 
heretofore contracted. There you go. Just like David Astle pointed out in the Babylonian woe, the front man for the bankers, in this case King George III, they will always cover for the bankers, always make sure the bankers, their bosses, get paid. <laughs> but wait a minute. Didn't we win the war? <laughs> and we got to pay the king's bankers still? Okay. Uh, uh, but basically, if you go through all the articles in the treaty, you'll see that it, it is, even as it started out, it's the, the, the king of, of England who is setting all of the terms. Article 1, 2, you name it. Uh, he was calling the, the shots. And since when does the loser in a war do that? We did, he, the king of England was not the loser in that war. Uh, moving on in history and in the footnotes, this is Jay's treaty from a few years later. Oh gosh, what year was this? Uh, <laughs> doesn't say. It'll say at the end, I suppose. But in Jay's treaty, uh, look at this Article Two in Jay's treaty. His Majesty will withdraw all his troops and garrisons from all posts and places within the boundary lines assigned by the Treaty of Peace to the United States. Uh, what were British troops still doing there? Okay, and this is 13 years after the Treaty of Peace was supposed to have removed them. <laughs> Folks, we didn't win that war. We did not win that war. Uh, moving on. And the king's giving us uh, all of our land that we're already supposed to have in, in this Jay's Treaty. Article 6. Whereas it is alleged by diverse British merchants and others, His Majesty's subjects, that debts to a considerable amount which were bona fide contracted before the peace still remain owing to them by citizens or inhabitants of the United States. Uh, <laughs> Okay, the King of England is still dictating terms to the United States about debt collections for Britain here. You know, he's, he's covering for the bankers again, making sure uh, the, the king is making sure his banking bosses get paid so that by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, the British creditors cannot now obtain compensation for the losses and damages which they have thereby sustained. It is agreed the United States will make full and complete compensation for the same to the said creditors. What is the king of Britain doing dictating that if we really won that war, folks? Okay, Article 12 of Jay's Treaty. His Majesty consents... <laughs> Dictating again, that it shall and may be lawful, oh, thank you, during the time hereinafter limited, for the citizens of the United States to carry to any of His Majesty's islands and ports in the West Indies from the United States in their own vessels, not being above the burthen of 70 tons, any goods or merchandises, being of the growth, manufacture, or produce of the said states. And His Majesty also consents. Look at this. Look at the, the supposed loser of the war is consenting. Mm. The king is dict... This is dict... 
dictating terms. If the king had lost that war, there would, this wouldn't happen. This is not the way it happened, as uh, James Montgomery pointed out. When, on the USS Missouri, when General MacArthur uh, arranged the peace, signed the peace treaty with the Japanese, it was MacArthur who dictated the, the terms because America, the United States won that war. Did we let Japan dictate the terms? Uh, no, because they lost the war. Well, here, the King of England's dictating the terms because, because America, the United States, did not win that revolutionary war. And His Majesty also consents, provided all, uh, giving us, oh, giving us our ports and islands. Oh, thanks. Provided always that the said Americans do carry and land their cargoes in the United States only, the United States will prohibit and restrain the carrying of any molasses, sugar, coffee, or cotton in American vessels. Uh, okay, just telling us where we can take our stuff to, where we can, where we can ship our goods to and where we can't. The king of Britain in Jay's treaty is dictating that. Why is the king dictating terms of American trading 13 years after the Treaty of Peace if America really won that revolution? America didn't really win that American revolution. Uh, article 18. In order to regulate what is in future to be esteemed contraband of war, all the above are, and it lists a ton of stuff here, uh, and it's all munitions. Anything having to do with uh, munitions, petards, mortars, muskets, cannon, bandoliers, gunpowder, etc., etc. All of the above articles are hereby declared to be just objects of confiscation. Why is America agreeing to a wide variety of material to be confiscated by the British if America really won that revolution. We didn't win that revolution. Uh, anything else I wanted to show? Um, I, maybe that's it. Uh, something else I got highlighted here and then we'll call it a day. Congressman Beck had this to say about the 1933 War Powers Act. You'll find this under Congressman James Peck in the Congressional Record of 1933. Quote, I think of all the damnable heresies that have ever been suggested in connection with the Constitution, the doctrine of emergency is the worst. It means that when Congress declares an emergency, there is no Constitution. This means it's death. But the Constitution of the United States has a restraining influence in keeping the federal government within the carefully prescribed channels of power is moribund, if not dead. We are witnessing its death agonies, for when this bill becomes a law, if unhappily it becomes law, which it did, there is no longer any workable constitution to keep the Congress 
within the limits of its constitutional powers, unquote. There you go, folks. A congressman in 1933 declared that if the War Powers Act went through, which it did, said uh, <laughs> the country's dead. It's gone. And we were declared in that act alien enemies. And alien enemies... <laughs> Alien enemies, it's late. Alien enemies, defined in Bouvier's Law Dictionary, they're said to have no rights, no privileges, unless by the king's special favor during time of war. And uh, it's one who owes allegiance to the adverse belligerent. <laughs> That's us. Congratulations. We're slaves. And we're making bricks for Pharaoh. The difference between a guy like myself and uh, people listening to the show and the rest of the country is we know they don't. They don't know they're slaves, folks. How sad. How how sad. Oh, come Jesus, come. Uh, This has been part three in the close of the United States is still a British colony by James Montgomery. I tell you what, uh, I'm going to get into one, just one more essay by James Montgomery. I think it's going to be that, uh, the one called A Country Defeated in Victory. Uh, Because he goes into greater detail on uh, exactly how they pulled off the shenanigans that, uh, how the founding quote-unquote fathers pulled off the shenanigans of making us believe the the Constitution was one thing when it uh, really was not. It was a... Yeah, so there'll be a couple more shows about James Montgomery, and and that'll be that. But uh, that was his... This has been his essay, The United States is Still a British Colony. So stop hearkening. Stop referring back to the Constitution. It's meaningless. Gone. It never meant anything. Uh, it gave us some privileges. Okay, uh, this has been the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. Thank you for listening. Over and out. Come, Jesus. Come. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.